This episode of the Troxel Podcast is made possible with support from ArcIT. Are you tired of standard IT services that miss the mark? Choose ArcIT for specialized, proactive IT management, BIM support, and robust data security tailored for architects. Whether you're a team of 10 or a growing firm of 50-plus, ArcIT understands the architecture industry and will empower your unique creative vision to enable you to do your best work. Embrace a technology team that enhances, not hinders, your design process. Visit GetArcIT.com for your free IT assessment and start transforming your firm and your tech experience today. That's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. And if it's your first time here, welcome. I know there's a lot of new listeners and watchers out there. And if you are a regular listener and are enjoying these episodes, please tap that subscribe button on YouTube and in your preferred podcast app. Your subscription is incredibly valuable in supporting my efforts. And I genuinely hope you find the conversations published here enriching for yourself and valuable for the AEC industry. Let me tell you why being a subscriber matters. We live in a world of metrics, and subscriber numbers directly influence two things. My ability to attract sponsors that help keep this show going, and my ability to attract high-profile guests, which is great for you. My goal is to deliver quality episodes to provide value to you and the industry as a whole. Interestingly, just this week, uh, the YouTube side of my analytics show that about 88% of viewers aren't subscribed to my channel. I have no clue about the podcasting side of things as far as those metrics go, but it's probably similar. So if you haven't subscribed, I encourage you to do so. It's completely free, and it's a great way to support Troxel. And remember, since this is a numbers game to some extent, Please do me a favor and subscribe in both places, on YouTube and in your favorite podcast app. And finally, for those of you in the audience who are in a position to support my work directly, there are two more ways that you can do so. You can make a donation at trxl.co slash donate or consider becoming a member. To learn more about the perks of membership and to join, simply click on one of the subscribe buttons at trxl.co. Your support is crucial for the sustainability of the show, whether you're listening to the ad-supported versions or a member, making a donation, whatever it is, I deeply appreciate you. Okay, the release of this episode coincides with two things. The first is the release of Apple's Vision Pro headset, a new computing platform for, among other things, authoring and experiencing immersive AR and VR environments. And the second is the public announcement of Treasury, of which my guest today is the founder of. Treasury is the premier spatial asset hub for digital environment creators and builders. It protects and distributes the world's most valuable digital spatial assets and environments, which I think architects, and others in AEC are quite possibly the best authors of. I'm not sure the mindset is there yet, but the digital spatial assets that are created throughout the design process to make the world's most valuable physical environments is the topic of today's conversation. So I welcome John Manucheri to the podcast today to talk about it. 
In this episode, we discuss the potential of spatial computing and digital environments in the AEC industry from a cataloging, usage, and licensing perspective as more and more of these types of devices come online, how creative industries are leading the way in exploring the potential of this medium, how this tech is opening up new possibilities in fields like entertainment, productivity, and mental health, and how it also challenges our understanding of what good design means as it pushes beyond the experience of physical environments. And finally, we talk about the intersection of digital and physical design and how a feedback loop could lead to shifts in the design of physical spaces based on people's experiences in digital environments. I always enjoy talking with John, and I hope you'll not only find value in this conversation for yourself, but that you'll help add value to your colleagues and peers by sharing this episode with your network. So now, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with John Menachiri. John, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Thank you, Evan. This is a great privilege. Um, everybody in architecture and technology knows the platform that you've created. So it's a privilege to join the ranks of, um, of the uh, alumni of the podcast. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. I think we've been talking for a couple of years. I mean, you were doing Future Perfect Talks, yeah. which I was on that at one point amongst many other esteemed colleagues in yes. AEC. And, yes. uh, and that was when you were... You were doing a different startup at that time called Last Meter. I, maybe you yeah. can give us, just provide a history of your trajectory in AEC, how you've gotten to where you are before we jump into the real topic of today's conversation. I think to give uh, a, an honest assessment of how I got here, right, it probably it, it, it is, is useful to be honest about how I think and, and, I, and, I, and how I've sort of like pursued a career. I guess that I'm probably just too lazy um, to go about things the normal way and, you know, get qualified and go and do a thing, go to a thing. Um, and, and I think also maybe just a bit too uh, sort of curious in a rebellious way. That would be the polite way of setting up just in very generic terms how we got to this situation or how um, I'm doing what I'm doing. I think without going into too much detail, I think it probably also has to do with quite a complicated family background, um, mm. which you know, I don't need to share too much here, but neither parents, neither my parents went to university. My father is, you know, um, kind of a criminal and so forth. And so for me to like find my way into kind of like a conventional career uh, or a conventional educational path was a little bit harder than I think it is for, for, for has been for some people. Um, so that's probably another aspect of it. But I, I think the correct way of thinking about it is I'm um, sort of lazy and uh, refuse <laughs> to play by, you know, the normal rules and then regret it many years later and think, shit, I should have done that very boring <laughs> qualification. Wow. Um, but, but I do think that there is something else also going on. And, and this is where I'm, I'm relatively proud, which is that having sort of, sort of, refuse to kind of go through conventional routes to things. Um, I am very much a completist and sort of some kind of perfectionist and certainly I'm super, super interested in understanding things, what I would say properly in the old fashioned way, meaning not just because everyone says it makes sense, but there seems there needs to be some sort of, you know, systematic insights involved. 
I think that's helped me a lot. And I think it will certainly help me going forward. It may not help my businesses. They may all just go wrong, but sort of intellectually and professionally, I think that has been very useful as, as I'll sort of try to unfold. So that's all the sort of sort of pompous framing to give myself any number of exits when people start saying, this guy really shouldn't be doing the things that he's doing. Um, <laughs> but long story short, I, I, I got my bachelor's degree just to kind of medium length version of getting, getting into where, where we're at and where we're, we're going in this conversation at the University of Oxford. And I basically was so arrogant about, you know, not wanting to study a conventional career path, thinking I could just work all that out later because at school, it wasn't particularly difficult uh, ultimately to get, you know, high grades. I was, wasn't, and very curious and sort of like uh, fundamentally in like how cognition works, right? And that's, a, that's one of the things that ends up being actually quite useful nowadays that LLMs and so forth are coming into the frame when people talk about AGI. My bachelor's degree is in um, uh, Sanskrit and um, uh, basically I specialize in sort of Buddhist theories of cognition because uh, it just fascinated me. And I thought, you're going to use a fucking career. I'm just going to go and study shit that's fascinating <laughs> to me. Right. And, and, um, and so I went to the university, which has the oldest chair in uh, Sanskrit, Department of Sanskrit in, in the Western world. It had a chair of Sanskrit uh, since before it had a mathematics uh, a chair. And um, it, was, it, it wasn't perhaps as philosophically interesting as I would have liked. Um, it didn't help me advance as some kind of Buddhist, which part of me wanted to do, but it did make me a good linguist and it made me a very good, I think, sort of classical scholar, right? Because if you study Sanskrit, it's, it's ruthlessly systematic in a way that essentially almost no disciplines have really matched up to. Um, and because I do a lot of stuff all the time, right, I'm essentially working on things all the time. I had been in the university essentially doing structured sort of sustainability and environmental advocacy. So I was the chair of the universe of the university student environment committee. I was on the university, the entire university's environment committee. I was doing all sorts of sort of extracurricular activities in environmental science and managed to kind of jujitsu all of that into a job at the United Nations Environment Program, where I worked in the European office of the UN Environment Program in Geneva for basically four years and wrote their book. And it's sort of disgusting the young age on sustainable urban consumption. Hmm. And um, I was very proud of that because actually what that meant that I had to do was get very good at um, sort of economics and policy and become an economics and policy professional. They didn't know, by the way, and this is kind of hilarious to share this because I've almost never told anybody this stuff. When I went to work at UNAB in Geneva, they didn't know I didn't have an economics degree. I was sitting in my underpants at 2 a.m. You know, reading economic papers. Um, so that I could write the books that were asking me, but that sort of set the foundation, I think the tone for kind of the stuff I'm interested in, which is basically you take the, the physical world, how do you examine it from the perspective of resources, right? And that basically sets up everything that I've done since then, because I realized, oh, this is a puzzle that is so interesting to me and it's so multidimensional that I will never not be interested in this. And, um, pretty, pretty proud of that really, because I, I, I do think that if we look at architecture, architectural design, technology, uh, manufacturing, architectural teaching, um, it doesn't really take the issue very seriously. And so I'm pretty sure that there's contributions that I, I, I could make uh, if, you know, if, if I get better at doing business and, and sort of actual design rather than just talking. But um, I think there are, there are things to be said, let's put that in a way that's less flattering to me. There are things to be said and done in architectural design and technology and education that aren't yet done to take seriously the issue of what is the relationship between the built environment and 
by natural resources. And so that, that, that whole puzzle started off. I was, I mean, this, uh, this is blowing my own trumpet, but I'm pretty ha happy about it. It's the book I wrote for UNEP many years ago is actually the most cited book on uh, 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 sort of consumption policy in a recent sort of 40 year review of, of consumption, uh, review of the last 40 years of consumption policy. That encourages me to think that it was something good about what I did then, even though I was a kind of absolute, absurdly underqualified, preposterously over presumptuous sort of person. But I think that it, it evidences that what I'm, what I'm sort of trying to say about myself in confirmation terms is I try and think very systematically about things. Mm -hmm. And so what I then realized is that I didn't want to work in policy, right? Because actually my brain doesn't, is probably a bit too active for policy making. Mm. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I did want to stay stuck to those themes. And so did see sort of consulting around in, you know, d different aspects of, of environmental science and sustainability and ended up in Sweden where long story short, I, um, I, I worked in Sweden for the, for the, uh, what's called the Stockholm Environment Institute, which is quite crap, like a, uh, sort of prominent environmental science and policy institute, um, that, that actually gave rise to, to one of the, it was, it was sort of a career stepping stone to one of the main guys in, in sustainability right now, Johan Rockström. So I worked briefly with Johan Rockström, um, at, at Stockholm Environment Institute and, uh, and a bunch of other people on different sort of sustainability topics rooted to some extent in consumption, but that's a pretty broad area. So it ends up being transport and, you know, climate and various other things. And in the end, I sort of thought that just got to be a more creative and directly impactful way to express interest in sort of the, the, the large scale physics of environmental sustainability. And so that really knowing what I was doing, I, I took a, um, a post-professional diploma in architecture at the Graduate School of Architecture in um, Sweden. Um, in Stockholm, there are two architecture schools. There's the old architecture school that was attached to the, that is attached and was attached to the art school, to the Royal College of Art. And historically, the undergraduate architecture was there and the postgraduate architecture uh, was also there. And then there is now the new architecture school at the Royal Institute of Technology, also called KTH. The undergraduate architecture is now there. So I took a post-professional architecture course in the graduate school that's still in the, uh, in the art school. And then, um, I uh, got a scholarship to carry on doing that there and sort of, sort of bleeding into the architecture profession, essentially taking my particular flavor of environmental sustainability, uh, research and policy and so forth. And, um, uh, and sort of injecting it more and more into architectural design, um, Around about this time, I started a PhD on, on, um, on, uh, um, around the sort of the, the, the special areas of, uh, of, um, uh, consumption theory that I'd worked out underneath my unit work, uh, with Tim Jackson in the UK, who's, you know, arguably the kind of foremost, um, consumption researcher in the UK. He's recently written together with others at quite a, um, a sort of, uh, I was a controversial article in nature which we'll come back to probably at the end of this podcast about the future of sustainability and degrowth and so forth, which I don't really agree with. And probably because I don't really agree with the sort of trend line to this thought and probably because I was basically just exploding with half art ideas that I would need more years than he could offer me as a supervisor to kind of organize. I didn't finish my, my PhD with him. And so that was in the background of me at the same time taking a small step into architecture via the say the graduate architecture school at the Royal um, 
a college of art in Sweden. But what happened then was actually pretty interesting. And probably if I had had, I don't want to sort of, you know, have a sort of bullshit sob story, but if I'd had probably a better family background, I would have probably done this much quicker and better than I did. I quite quickly got involved in the actual practice of architecture. So I was like, you know, picking off little lectures to say, wow, you know, you can think about consumption of resources in this way in terms of the built environment and have these hideous sort of PowerPoint style lectures. Um, and then gradually got pulled into both architectural teaching, I started teaching um, uh, master's level courses at the architecture school, uh, the, the, the main architecture school in Stockholm at KTH and gradually started doing studio courses there. Um, and got invited to do, to lead a bunch of courses the planning school together with some of the architecture teachers because there was a pretty clear overlap on the urban design piece of the work at the planning school attached to KTH, the Royal Institute of Technology at Stockholm. So that suddenly became a piece of my work, like, you know, teaching architecture, urban design at different, you know, both sort of technically and in design terms. And so that was an engagement with the actual profession. And then I got started getting pulled into as a kind of junior architectural designer with a massively over-specified set of knowledge in environments mm -hmm. and sustainability into mm -hmm. larger and larger projects. And so through that, you know, through that little kind of opening, was invited to lecture at the Ark Ingalls Group in Copenhagen, uh, was lecturing at White, which is a large Nordic, Nordic office, started getting pulled into Bjarke Ingalls projects, you know, got to know Bjarke as he was getting famous and got to know, you know, some of the partners and got involved in more of their projects. And that was actual architectural design work, right? And so it was very, very interesting to kind of see at the reality of the design profession at an extremely high level. Well, I mean, right. it was pretty high level at that point. It was, sure. you know, this is before Bjarke became a true supernova in scale terms, but it was pretty high level stuff. And one of the biggest projects, the biggest project I was involved with Bjarke English, which is the biggest project in any, in the, in the built design history of Sweden, which is the, 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 the moving of the city of Kiruna, uh, my company at that time, design company, Resource Vision, was the sustainability, sustainable architecture consultant pulled into okay. the project with mm. a bunch of other, you know, people. And so at that point, I began to see sort of all of these little pieces kind of unfolding. So I could see that, you know, the, the, the core of the profession, what was interesting about it was not taking any of these issues seriously, right? To be, to be respectful to Bjarke, they are interested in it, right? They're probably much better at it now, but they were just doing what the clients wanted, which really wasn't that much, right? Mm. Uh, another part of the profession, the, the more established officers were doing lead certification, which wasn't and doesn't lead to very much at all. You know, 3% yeah. increment or energy efficiency, and then it all falls away after year two, yeah. post-construction. But I could see that the sustainability wasn't really happening, but also the bigger picture of sustainability, which is the, cons the consumption of resources at scale in the built environment. Yeah and the human infrastructural system, which is not happening, right? So, 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 so when you say that, you are not talking about the actual construction process. You're talking about the after, after occupancy process well, of so, consumption. So, so that, yeah, so I'll, I'll, come, I'll just, I'll say a quick comment on the content, but just me, let me part with sort of the, this, this, you know, silly story of my programs. So basically I started working projects with larger offices around sustainability and see that the bigger issues, I'll explain to answer your question, what those bigger issues really are, okay. were not being dealt with seriously. And I was like, well, mm, I don't want to be an idea stunt man for Bjarke. So he takes my best ideas and presents them as his stuff or any other office, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. just, it's just what happens if you're, you know, a, 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 yeah. you know, a, a consultant designer on larger offices. Yeah. You know, I was doing it cynically. 
Um, and I didn't want to be involved in basically greenwashing. I mean, lead is basically greenwashing. It's absurd. It's not achieving anything close to what it needs to achieve. And so I was, I, I realized, wow, I advanced very quickly in a profession and yet I'm not really achieving very much. How frustrating. <laughs> I, what what, what the issues are. Yeah, yeah. Right. But so what the issues are, right, just to kind of summarize this, because this gets very interesting and it comes back to the technology piece, which is where we'll land in a, in a second. Mm-hmm. Basically, there are two ways of thinking of environmental sustainability in relation to the built environment, right? And architecture is sort of the anchoring piece of the built environment, but it means the infrastructure and urban morphology as well, right? And one is the physics of the stuff, right? So it's, it's the pre-construction process, impact on nature, what resources are you choosing? And then it's the actual embodied stuff that you use. So it's concrete and it's cloth and it's steel and it's, you know, whatever you're using to actually have the standing physical infrastructure. And then it's the you know, the actual energy and resources of the building and use water and electricity and stuff. And so that's all. And then even there's the post-construction stuff and your life cycle and whatnot. And that's one piece of it, the physical embodiment of energy in the pre-construction, construction and the use and then the Mm -hmm. disassembly or destruction phase of the built environment. Great. Actually, that is not the main drive, not the main uh, story of, of sustainability in relation to the built environment. And this is where my consumption work starts really kind of becoming, I think, very interesting. And this is going to be the interesting issue that I think comes up in the next 20 years. The real thing that happens in the built environment, and that's already like 30 or 40% of all resources consumed, this is the physics of the built environment. It's how the built environment economically and in terms of its configuration induces or restrains specific economic consumption patterns. Hmm. If you design a building, with parking spaces, you will have cars in that building. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly you have a car-based economy, right? Mm-hmm. If you have buildings that are distributed around suburbs, they will need to have an energy system that cannot rely on combined heat and power or, or district heating, which is a huge cost saver and sustainability boost to space heating, right? And so what you discover is that there are, there are all of these second order effects that actually end up to being most of the rest of what happens in the economy. And it's one of the main problems, not just with, you know, the narrative around sustainability and built environment, but the entire consumption narrative. It's why I don't want to engage with the, um, I don't think, I don't think that, I don't think the policy proposals from Jackson and, um, and uh, Jason Hickel and the other degrowth people are, are credible in the sense that really what's going on that drive consumption of resources at the largest scale isn't people's behavioral choices mm-hmm. in practice. Once you've bought a home with a carport attached, you will be a driver and you cannot economically or socially move away from that choice, mm-hmm. right? So yes, of course you can afford to not buy homes with cars attached, but at some point it becomes deeply sophisticated yeah. and it's no longer a moral choice, right? So to moralize these issues is a problem. So just to kind of put that back in context, mm-hmm. I realize this stuff actually, when you look inside projects of the largest scale, I realized this very much in relation to the Kirin project. This is the point when I realized I had to start the company because I created as part of the um, Kirin City Mood project with Biaka and his team, a lifestyle system. I'd already created a lifestyle system concept as part of my, you know, architecture diploma project. Like we should have consumption systems that integrate with the built environment. So you have shared washing machines. It was all pretty crude in my thinking. And I realized, wow, this is pretty cool. They said to me, the, 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 the big team said to me, oh, this is awesome shit. And I was like, yeah, it is awesome shit. Why the fuck don't I own this? 
like the whole <laughs> consumption system, you know, uh-huh. it designed into the built environment. Because, you know, I realize that's going to be a big piece of how, if we take sustainability seriously, including obviously carbon emissions, primarily carbon emissions in the, in the next 10 or 20 years, but also other resource flows, we want to take this stuff seriously. We will need to use the built environment as massive levers of systemic consumption phenomena. It isn't just personal choices. It's the systemic choices of yeah. if I buy some clothing, can I get it returned without it going to a fucking landfill? Right. right? If you want to stop fast fashion, you don't just clamp down a fucking H&M and their supply chains. Um, you have to enable the so-called circular economy. Yeah. But, but the circular thinkers aren't working out that the circular economy is essentially an infrastructural problem. And infrastructural yeah. problems when it comes to consumers are architectural problems and the morphology problems, right? Yeah. And so once you, once you realize these connections, you go, oh, this is all pretty complicated. So once I'd done the Kirina project with Bianca and I'd created this consumption system which involved an app and interventions in the courtyards and in the parking and in the, you know, in the, in the logistics system of the whole city, I was like, hmm, this is going to happen. I'd like to have my name on it. I'd like to contribute to it both analytically, operationally, and in design terms. And, uh, and then so I started a company called Last Meter, mm-hmm. which basically, long story short, is an integration service integration system, right? Mm-hmm. If we assume that all consumption patterns, I buy a thing, an apple, some clothing, a car, an apartment, uh, I, I, you know, I buy, you know, uh, uh, hobby equipment, skis, fishing rods. We assume that the uh, product-based economy is inherently inefficient. This is a little bit gone where we, we want to go today, but in terms of the theory of consumption, once you have surplus goods as modern consumers, which we do, everything moves to a service-based model. It doesn't make any sense to buy 100% of the time availability of a fishing rod if you use it for 1% of its lifetime. Mm-hmm. So you'll buy a service access, access to it. Everything becomes timeshare, right? So this is the mm-hmm. service economy unfolding. Service economy, once it becomes infrastructuralized, uh, and operationalized is basically a logistics e- enterprise. It's a logis- yeah. logistics enterprise of warehousing, inventory management, and packaging and vehicles going back and forth. Well, what does that become? That becomes a massive opportunity for com- commercial and, uh, and residential real estate. Because if it turns out to be the case that real estate owners discover that all the consumers coming in don't want to own fishing rods, don't want to own you know, closets filled with old clothes, don't want to Everybody's own you know, skis and skiing boots. Stuff, right. right? So, so that's, that's a transition that we're on top of, right? Is that mm-hmm. when services are able to physically, logistically integrate with real estate, suddenly that will be our model, right? Mm-hmm. Having huge storage areas with shit we never use is gradually dying. It's totally pointless. We've gone to that point right now with skiing. Probably 80% of most casual skiers don't own their own skis. I mean, just, just, mm-hmm. you know, that don't suppress yeah. the precise statistic, but you can see the point that our use intensity of goods is declining as we become more and more configured consumers of goods. And so the service economy arises, but it doesn't work unless the infrastructure, uh, and ultimately the architecture, we, and architecture is the, I mean, it's one of my ways of describing architecture. Architecture is, is the, in, the, is the human interface of infrastructure. Right. Mm. I mean, not many people use that definition, but not many people in architecture have any good definitions of architecture. So, so my first of my side swipes to architecture, <laughs> but, 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 but one of my main, so my main frustrations with architecture, having got into it is that the thinking is piss poor, right? Is it systematizing what is going on in the profession is pathetically slight. Well, and most so of the profession uh, is a, is a reactive service-based industry and it's not a yeah. leadership proactive. Mm. 
Yes, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a service-based industry and it's a service-based industry that in practice makes its money by pandering to very powerful people. Mm. It tends to be the case in history, the industries that pander the powerful people, the ones that have the least system of kind of could they get away with anything? Power talks, money talks, and theory isn't needed. Anyways, um, mm. so the point there is that if, if, if we play that out, that consumption's changing in a surplus, uh, in economy of, of huge consumer surplus to being a service economy, service economies as they become operationalized are basically infrastructuralized logistics systems. Mm. And that is an opportunity for real estate operators because right now the current situation is that that transition, serviceization of consumption is crashing in literally at the last meter, beyond the last mile of real mm. estate. Packages are proliferating lobbies, which is a fire hazard, right? In terms of regulation. But it's not just a fire hazard. It's a free gift to one of the richest men in history. When I speak to real estate developers and operators, I say, are you happy making Jeff Bezos the world's first trillionaire? Like, what do you, what do you mean? I'm like, why do you think Jeff Bezos' company is worth one and a half trillion dollars? Like, I don't know where you're heading with this. Because you're giving him free retail frontage. Yep. Retail... Yep. Space has essentially three functions, yep. right? Inventory <laughs> discovery, or inventory inspection, the transaction and fulfillment. You look at goods, you buy the goods, you get the goods. Mm-hmm. Now, inventory discovery is happening online. Fulfillment is happening through third-party logistics and transactions happening online. The retail proof is no longer a spatial phenomenon. You can go, you can find reasons to have showrooms and whatnot, and people want to right. be in shops and so forth. But operationally, Amazon has said, great, we'll do the inventory discovery. We'll do the, it will do the transaction. You fucking clowns who own real estate can be our fulfillment partners and we will never pay you a cent. But right. we will not pay you a cent. We'll make you pay for our shitty lockers to operation, to, yeah. to optimize our, our poor performance. Right. right. So when you say that, real estate mm-hmm. operators are delivering, you know, um, free gifts, premium real estate to Jeff Bezos. They go, holy shit. Tell yeah, me more yeah. about this lock meter thing. So yeah. I created a company that, Designs buildings so that you can op- yeah you can you can you can op- optimize for services that the real estate operators choose. You have a you know a service marketplace. You have a data system that you know wraps all of it in efficiency. Beautiful, wonderful, works well. Real estate is just too slow yeah. to make this work. Right? right, it takes too long to get the data. It takes too long to get the you know the, the property managers to do the thing. You know, and it, and and I'm not a good enough entrepreneur. I'm not kind of not kind of entrepreneur that does what Travis Kalanick did, which is say you know what I'm going to run the operations. This right. theory, right, of efficiency that we can opt, you know, the platform, the system can op- optimize itself, which is what I believe is the case with last meter service integration, real estate can get value, revenue share from services that optimizes into the building to facilitate returns and efficient packaging and all sorts of things. Sales of interesting, you know, uh, services, all that efficiency gain that last meter uh, op- uh, make, r- makes clear as an opportunity requires a lot of operational cycling right now. They need lock yeah. systems, they need data systems, they need management, training, right. they need all sorts of things. And if I'm not going to raise a billion dollars just to do all that, and you then have to can, can you making them. no money, yeah. right, yeah. which is the way Uber did it, then I sit there for a few years, which is what I did, but I to go, oh, you all want to play along, but you basically yeah. want me to do all your legwork for you so that you can then make money. Mm, that is a in- very expensive capital investment and a huge amount of operational involvement. Um, not Travis Klanick, um, too goofy and geeky and design oriented for that. Um, and I just don't want to do it. So the yeah. so last meter, right, was where I got to after seeing two things. One is that, you know, the sustainability profile of, um, of, you know, the high end of the built environment 
professions, you know, architecture and infrastructure and so forth, were not taking the bigger picture of sustainability seriously. They weren't cleaning up the, the embodied consumption of resources and they absolutely couldn't even see the extent to which, you know, architectural morphological uh, um, considerations were massively inducing or, 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 um, or restraining transformations in the overall, you know, d- d- dynamics of, of, of economic consumption. And so all that stuff, you know, I, I sort of puzzled out and came to the last meter and realized, oh shit, this is, I love it. So fascinating. It's so cool. It's making no money. <laughs> and I also don't like working with real estate people that much in the sense that doesn't feel very creative or technical, right? Yeah. If you're selling them a package solution where you are the technician and the creator, you're basically waiting for them to do stuff. And that is not inherently very interesting. Yeah. Um, real estate is the best asset class in history. It will remain that the, the best asset class in history. So real estate people don't do very much, but yeah. that's, that's what happened. If I was sort of sitting there watching last meter kind of flatline, I guess, I mean, it's partly because I'm just not enough, not good enough to historically have not been a good enough business, but to just tell shit and get to pay for shit. We're trying to explain things rather than just sell stuff, which I think is a, you know, a pretty critical flaw for anyone that wants to sell things. You just got to let people, you know, convince themselves that it's awesome. And I, let's take, I think it's entitled to get good at that or better at that. But in any case, then COVID hit and that was a good time to kind of like puzzle things out. So I started a podcast that isn't quite the same as the famous Troxel Punk. <laughs> what I was trying to do was to kind of investigate the sort of bigger you know, echo chamber of issues around the work I've done, right? If you take uh, uh, design technology and you take sustainability issues and you take broader issues, how do they, how do they all configure? Or try to find a sort of friendly way of getting into the kind of mind space that I've, I've spent time in. And I think by that time, I'd also realized that I had got good at architectural design technology at every level of the stack, right? So not just like, you know, design tool, but actually conventional technology like, you know, just, uh, um, you know, platform technology. I learned a lot about platform technology and, you know, uh, mobile technology and just the standard Silicon Valley stack and how it relates to design technology, which is a relative, relatively unusual sort of intersection. So I knew a lot about tech and so I kind of t- could talk and I've become a good technologist. I mean, I can c- code properly and I can use tools properly. So I can like, like articulate it, but then have an idea world around it. And that's an unusual sort of Thing. So I was trying to drive the conversation into what is, as it were, the, the impact implications of this technology confluence between design technology and you know, the you know, Silicon Valley tech stuff, normal daily technology. And did that for a season and Epic Games started sponsoring. They said, look, this, this content is pretty good. We like it. And basically one of the questions I asked some people in the, in the course of that podcast um, was, uh, um, Okay, so if we're going to build these metaverses, right, which the way that the historic have been presented are not very interested in, like some kind of social hangout space, like second, like I didn't have a lot of interest in that, but I could see that the technology was getting better and better. It was going to continue facilitating that conversation and that vision insofar as anybody, you know, clings to it. I asked one of the guys, well, the guy actually who, who you know, sort of profiled his, his expertise against the metaverse, Matt Ball, who I think is an extremely brilliant human being. He's got a very holistic view of the whole space where all the assets are going to come from, or where all the environments are going to come from. And he was like, well, you know, what do you, what do you really mean? I said, well, you can't just make them. You can't just draw a city's worth of assets and then pop up a metaverse. You'd be lagging years every time you want to do anything, right? Yeah, right. And, you know, generative content, procedural content is not going to be nearly good enough, right? Mm-hmm. 
the game companies, you know, the AAA game companies that do a lot of content development or the film studios do these huge, have these huge, like many year, you know, arts asset procurement processes, either third party or in-house. And even then the content that they use for their games and movie environments is highly scripted. I mean, you can't walk up to a building or an environment and just do what you want with it, right? No. It has a specific set of potential interactions and it's meshed and it's fixed with this, with that in mind. It isn't arbitrary interaction ready, let alone most of it ready for super high photo real resolution, real time rendering. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if all this technology is, is, is maturing now, and we're all supposed to believe that, you know, the, the, these environments are ready for billions of users, where are the environments coming from? The other problem with it isn't just that there is a, you know, a, a kind of like a, like a bottleneck in terms of quality stuff that's ready to be used. Everything is owned, right? You know, all the buildings of the world have image rights attached. If you go to the Getty Images website, right? No, not the Getty Images. If, if you become a contributor to Getty Images, mm. uh, and then you have a special website to go to, um, they will show you. They they will they will make you read and use a very specific set of um, of legal clearance documents. And one of them is the building rights clearance document, and it essentially clarifies in black and white terms is that every building in the world is has copyright attached to it. And you have to respect it. Now, the reason why that hasn't been an issue in building out Metaverse before is because no one's done it at scale before. If they have, it hasn't been a big enough commercial, uh, you know, uh, issue based on the spatial environment for anybody that owns copyrights in the built world to say, I want my royalty, but it is now about to be that. Mm-hmm. And so I realized, oh, goodness, if one of the foremost Metaverse thinkers doesn't reflexively understand that we need a lot of assets that are well-developed and ready for, you know, arbitrary, you know, uh, photo real, real-time rendered environment creation, offering population, and that we need a lot of licensing attached to shit that is either you know, real world or has design identity and so forth attached to it, then that could be something interesting. And he got there before me, he asked me, he said, you know, um, he, you know, he said, I would invest in that. And he, and I was like, well, what do you mean invest in what? I just asked you a question about where the assets come from. He said, you know, a licensing pipeline <laughs> for, for quality facial assets. I was like, oh, holy shit. I can't believe someone <laughs> hasn't done this because it seems like it's the most obvious thing. And it's mm-hmm. going to be a massive bottleneck and requirement. So I, the next thing I did is like, you know, I pinged Sharjay at Zaha Hadid, um, who I didn't know before the, 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 the Future Perfect podcast, but he'd been on it and been one of the most, I would say, particular and sober communicators around, you know, different dimensions of design technology. Um, I said, Shari, listen, is Zaha being asked for assets for, um, spectrum environment by spectrum environment builders? And he said, it's too tall. Yeah. I mean, we, we, you know, we're being asked for it. Currently we're in a project with PUBG. PUBG is the, you know, the, the, the kind of the original MMORPG, like battle royale game and they have seasonal maps and they were designing you know, some, some buildings for that, but it's an incredibly complicated procurement process. So I said, would you like to license your back catalog and any part of what you've created where you have, you know, you know, sign off and the developers that they own part of the, of the rights want to play along. Uh, let me check with Patrick Schumacher and Patrick Schumacher messaged back within 45 minutes saying, yes, we're all in. We want to do this thing. Now that happens to be the case that it happens to be the case that Patrick is very interested in metaverse as a whole proposition. Yeah, right. And so that sort of sat with, you know, in line with things. But there's more to it than that, which I'll, which I'll, which I'll come to. This was just an ex- massively long winded way of saying <laughs> there is a way to get from a, from working on environmental science and policy to um, digital spatial environments and asset licensing. Um, and I explained. <laughs> you forgot the Sanskrit so, part. 
You left that. Well, yeah, but no, I left it out because I don't want to be in the soundbite. It's 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 a it's a really intriguing path, John. I can't. No, nobody would ever see that path moving forward. And it's uh, it's it's interesting at the very end that you you said there is a path. (laughs) So so I think the thing is the thing is is that I can I can find it for me. This is what where I'm somewhat proud. Right? It's obviously frustrating that I'd love to be making more money and. And sort of pushing grand grander things forward, but I realize that there are very sort of interesting and large scale problems that don't necessarily have the right treatment yet. So if we just take the yeah. issue of like you know the extent to which the built environment induces consumption patterns, and it isn't a moral choice past a certain point to to live within a car economy, right? Right. Um, or to consume a certain way, and right. um, that's something that is probably far too under explored in the sustainability debate. And when you convert that into how do we optimize design, you know, in, in, incentivize, you know, monetize it, build in built environment and architecture to engage with that. There's tons of opportunities. So there, there I think there's a credibility line there. It isn't just sort of sort of um you know yeah. a- aleatorically grabbing random shit because there are people that do that who I find very annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is made possible with support from Chaos Enscape. Enscape is a plugin software that simplifies real-time visualization for us in the architecture, engineering, and construction industry. Whether your go-to design application is Revit, SketchUp, Rhino, ARCHICAD, or Vectorworks, Enscape lets you instantly create high-quality renderings by syncing data from your 3D model without additional import or export needed. Easily navigate every aspect of your design in real time and identify and resolve any issues you come across quickly. Plus, you can immerse your clients in VR to provide a tangible sense of the project. Enscape is the trusted choice of over 500,000 monthly users across 150 countries. They are soon launching something special that will make your 3D workflow the best 3D workflow for a special price. In the meantime, you can experience it for yourself for free at chaos-enscape.com slash trial-14 or simply by Googling Try Enscape. Thanks to Chaos Enscape for their support of this episode. And now let's get back to the conversation. Well, I, I, I find it very interesting the the change that you've gone through from last meter to what you're doing now at Treasury, yeah. and and so thank you for painting that picture because I think it does kind of show that there actually was a path there, and mm. that it was based on experience and, I mean, good and bad experience, like opportunity, but then also the reality of real estate development the way that these decisions are like the butterfly effect that are driving how consumption actually works. Mm. Um, and I don't think people are necessarily understanding. I mean, you, you said it yourself, right? They don't understand the true cost of those decisions when they're making them because these things are so much bigger than, and they're not, yeah. they're not the normal things we talk about. Even when you go through architectural training, which is probably the most esoteric you're going to get esoteric when you're going to that you're going to get when you are in the, a path to architecture and you're still not talking about that stuff right and it's 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 very interesting to me to see how it's actually playing out at on the biggest projects in the world and I, some things have happened since you've gone through this right we're now seeing development of megacities where i would assume 
there is a lot of this being planned into it. I don't know to what depth because I'm not privy to any of that information, right? But we see what's going on with the line. We see what's going on with Telosa. Like I get their email. I get their newsletters and they talk about it. We see videos on YouTube every once in a while. But you would assume a lot of this has to get baked in to those fully designed communities for this to work, right? Because, I mean, if I could boil down what you were saying to the most basic sense of something that I talk about all the time is, and no matter how big your house is, you're going to fill it with stuff, no matter how big your house. Like, and so to your point, if you have a carport, you're going to put a car in it, right? So if the design infrastructure, the architecture of the built environment where it's fully designed and and all the rules have been figured out at the beginning. That seems to me like the only chance that you have to create a community that consumes less based on everything that you're saying. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I mean, I mean, I mean what, what, I, what I would say there is, How would yes, you transform y- y- something? Y- yes, so, yes, how would you ish. transform something that already exists into what you're talking it, about? Uh, yeah, I, was, I, was, I, would say, I would say yes, ish. Harder. I would say yes, ish. I mean, I, I think that it's definitely easier to package up new ideas in new builds, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, and it's definitely interesting if you have, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, which, which right. um, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia has and is wielding, right. In the line and the neon, uh, which is, I mean, it's a whole separate question, but it's yeah. by far the most dominant project in the in the built design professions right now. Everybody is ending up there, right? Yeah, for better or for worse. Um, I I think that my, my just just I just pre, just uh, uh, straightforwardly, I think that there needs to be more cycles of conversation, yeah. right? This is where you know, if I had been, as I say, I think a little bit more confident about this stuff, and they probably mm. recruited more uh, sort of collaborators institutionally and otherwise a bit earlier on, I think there would have been more um, opportunity to kind of like, uh, uh, I don't say spread the word, but like, but it evolved the conversation around these things. Because right now, as, yeah. as simple as it seems to say that the built environment induces economic patterns and those economic patterns define consumption behaviors materially and aspirationally. And if you, you know, blend these to a bit, you can get real estate that has an additional value incentive by embedding services and taking revenue and optimizing those around. All this stuff is not very complicated to explain, but it isn't really happening. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's not just, you know, I think the built, the built design professions, I mean, this is part of my frustration. So the second job at architecture is the built design professions, which is not good at articulating, you know, I would say serious conversations. They're very fixated on, I think, very sort of speculative technical things. I mean, the aesthetics aspect is fine. People just want to talk about aesthetics, that's fine. But talking about, you know, the role of, you know, the built environment in sustainability or in, you know, health or in, you know, social inclusion. It, it, I, in general, I don't think it's all that serious and, and that the, the good technical stuff isn't very close to the pra- to practice, right? Mm-hmm. And I'd love that to change. And I think that um, how that changes, I don't know. I just think it just will take time. Right. In the same way that the you know, climate conversations take time for these things to become actual priorities and yeah. regulated issues. Like, for example, like in Sweden, I'll give you a little vignette of how I think these things change. It may not be the case that it's the same tra- trajectory of change as the big projects just do it. In Stockholm right now, the planning rules essentially as a baseline say that, you know, new residential apartments must have roughly 1.5, sorry, 1.2 parking spaces per two-person apartment. It's not that. That's the, that's the parking minimum baseline. But if the development has a, uh, a, a, a a binding legal agreement with a, this is in the planning policy, credible mobility provider, then they can sink that to 0.4 vehicles, right? Mm. Per two person apartment. So that's a regulatory intervention mm-hmm. that isn't quite the same as 
um, sort of just fiat regulations, not the same as government you know, investment in public public transit. But it's going to be, I think it's going to be very influential because developers start yeah. seeing, holy shit, if we find our way into a relationship with somebody doing transport, they haven't really found a way into a collaboration with the mobility providers, the sort of the, the tech mobility providers, because they're just too fucking chaotic and self-obsessed. Um, uh, so it tends to be a much more boring car sharing company, which is yeah. more less, less exciting and less flexible. But it's but it's there's, there's a trajectory there where I think through a number of cycles where developers start seeing different things and they, you know, developers start seeing my projects again and again, again, because I did a ton of different projects with developers in Sweden. They're like, we, yeah, we, we couldn't do that until we had better access to better services that we could really rely on. We don't want to experiment with our new development, right? So I would say yes-ish. That's what I mean when I say, you know, the line and neon probably will be good to, to articulate some of these kinds of things. But if the debate isn't that evolved, it may not really land. The other thing is actually, I think you can be careful, and this is one of the fascinating things about the, about, about the built environment, is that you really do want to make sure that change is allowed. Right? If you look at the big projects that have very visionary sort of intent, so we go back one generation before uh, Neon and the Line to Mazdar, for example, arguably too much of the thinking was baked in. Right? So if one partner falls away or one use case mm -hmm. fails, then a whole chunk of the city doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. Right, so you've got a whole, you know, solar farm. You've got an you know, educational campus, and you've got, you know, a transit system. And the transit system broke, just doesn't work, or whatever. I think that's one of the. So and and they, you know, and so, and so I think that the, the, the idea that it, either you know the trillion dollars will fix it, or it it's not possible. Yeah. So I'd say so essentially iterating these things and having yeah. more and more sophisticated arguments. But by the way, I, I, I'm not like when I say this. I do think that your your um, your podcast, but also like your voice and network and kind of conversational. Um, uh, network, your voice, your network, and the way that you conduct conversations, which is grounded in architectural practice and architectural sort of educational discipline, but is very constructively, forensically promiscuous in other domains. It is the kind of thing you need. I really do think so. Right. Yeah. I think it yeah. does bring in more voices and it does pull architecture out into more sort of structured commentary and engagement yeah. issues. So I, we've been burying the lead here, John. I think we need to get back to technology and what you're doing now. So let's talk about treasury because I th one of the things, like I said, I didn't, I didn't see the through line from last meter to treasury, but now through your experiences that you outlined with Big and with Zaha, talking to these different groups, talking with people at Epic, um, I can see how the puzzle was at least formulated. Um, now yeah. there's a lot of work to put it all of that pieces of the puzzle in the right place. So let, let's, I mean, because one of the other key components here that we haven't talked about really yet is just what Apple has branded as the era of spatial computing, right? Um, we, we've, we've been using VR headsets and AR headsets for quite a while now, but now we seem to be on the cusp of something and by the time this episode comes out, people will actually have these in their hands, like literally just a few days before this comes out, people who are willing to spend the money for it, of course. But but we we are on this cusp of something different. And I, I'm particularly excited about it as an architect. I feel like this is where we are going to have a potentially huge contribution to make. And so now that we're talking about spatial computing, digital environments beyond the metaverse, right? Uh, we're talking about something 
the next evolution of that. I don't even know what, what we call it yet. But but talk talk through that because the puzzle pieces are starting to fall into place even more so than than what you had outlined a few minutes ago about where, where the, okay. yeah, the genesis of yeah. these ideas yeah. came from. Yeah, thank you. So um so I mean basically when I realized that there was this opportunity to create a licensing platform from like spatial digital mm-hmm. environment creators or whatever sort out to digital environment um, you know, builders and, and users of assets. And I asked Zark, the ones to be involved. Three months after that, we had a very, very high value venture capital round with Google with one of our investors, because it's not a complicated idea, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so the large way to still exists. One of the reasons why I didn't you know, move forward faster is because I hadn't taken on you know, the, 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 the ruthless entrepreneurial <laughs> insight, I think was once articulated by the, you know, the director of or the CEO of PepsiCo, which is that you cannot articulate your business idea on the back of a business card. It cannot be implemented. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of helpful to me because it is very simple. People need spatial envir- digital spatial environments at scale, which are well-designed and well-licensed, and we can do that. So that idea landed, we got venture capital money incredibly quickly a good valuation. Um, Zahar became one of the founding partners. Tons of interest immediately from across the profession was pulled in. Um, I'll park that piece of the story kind of practically and go back to more of the sort of conceptual or the market framing piece for a second and then, and then pick up the, you know, the, the actual, you know, the, 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 the pragmatics of treasury and what we did and, and where we're at right now. But talk about spatial computing. I mean, when I started the, you know, the Future Perfect podcast, as, as I mentioned, I myself am not very wedded to the idea. In fact, I'm rather antagonistic to the idea that what people want to do is spend a lot of time in digital virtual places, right? So this idea of the metaverse as an alternative or parallel world, whether something that's temporary and entirely, you know, the, uh, uh, um, uh, speculative or an actual, you know, analog of the existing world in some way. I don't think there's a lot of, you know, um, fundamental rationale for that. We, we talk about more about that maybe later, but just in general, I don't think that's the most important thing. What I do think is happening is that, um, and, we, and we've written this, basically, we've written a, um, we call it a spatial computation thesis, which lays out this specific point that I'm about to make, is that a lot of con- technologies converging that have a spatial character, all right? If you take that perspective up and say, oh, Wow, there's a product we can create which allows people to exist in some kind of avatarized alternative or parallel world. If you, if you park that idea for a second, say, well, we, we, how would that be possible? What is it that would facilitate a metaverse type conversation? And what you can do is kind of break down technologies that allow that to, to be a possibility or a product, you know, endpoint for anybody, individuals or corporations. And it gets very fascinating. You can say, well, you know, mapping and earth sensing is, is having a huge renaissance. You know, CAD and DIM, like architectural design tools, root design tools, are having their own, you know, what they renaissance, but there is innovation going on there. And so, yeah, this is, this is what we know. How, how fast is moving is a whole separate question. Um, uh, reality capture, how we pull in information about the world and visualize it, rendering of, of, of digital environments, um, uh, technical form factors to view things. Uh, mobile phone, headsets, and so forth. Um, th- th- there's a lot of dimensions, like slices of technology that are all evolving ver- faster and faster. And then if you put AI onto all of them, you know, you start having, you know, like, you know, reality capture with, you know, interpolated models like nerfs and you have, you know, you know, training data sets that we never had before that can be, mm-hmm. you know, 
you know, trained up to generate, you know, in a very different way from rule bound procedural design, much more kind of statistical based, corpus based um, uh, machine learning generation. All of that is what we call the spatial technology convergence. Mm-hmm. Because what it doesn't do, I think, is represent a single product outcome, which is one other reason why I'm not really that interested in the, in the sort of social VR type metaverse, which is not only do I not think that users really want it, but I just don't think it's the, the single, the natural outcome of all the space technology stuff mm-hmm. that's maturing at the mm-hmm. same time. The space technology convergence, as far as I can see, is it's like an infrastructural layer on top of the internet society and economy. Right. And, and so people could say, oh, well, there's the metaverse and that's kind of what, you know, the, you know, the, the, the space technology revolution, the spatial technology you know, um, uh, infrastructure, um, you know, convergence represents. To say that spatial computation or spatial technology convergence and evolution represents, you know, it represents or ends up in the metaverse. It's like saying internet technology emergence and universality ends up in cyberspace, right? Mm-hmm. The, the metaverse is really a word as far as I can tell. Just to capture a few ideas, yes. and it's been prototyped right. by a few people, and that's fair enough. You know, when the internet was becoming a thing, people talk about cyberspace to get a sense or a flavor of something. But it hasn't been the case that you know, it, it, as the internet evolved, we went somewhere. O- the opposite happened. The internet came to us and then disappeared because it became everything. And the same yeah. is, I think, going to be true with for, for spatial computing and metaverse. We won't go to the metaverse. Spatial computing doesn't come to us; it's going to be part of everything, right? In the same yeah. way that if you have, when you're walking around your life today, you don't think, "I'm going to turn the internet on and off." I'm going to go into the internet, right? It's just everyone, a little piece here and there, right? And, right, right? and so that's what we mean by infrastructural layer, right? Is there going to be a tiny bit of visualization, a tiny bit of reality capture, a tiny bit of AR, a tiny bit of, you know, and so if you have that perspective, that, that rather than metaversization, like a product premise of alternative realities and avatarized people um, is coming out of space technology, the, the, the opportunity space is, is right vast. I mean, it's really fascinating, right? And one of the things I learned, this has been for me, I think the biggest of my personal epiphanies, I would say, is, and again, probably something I should have, if I'd had a a better upbringing, is I would have seen technology in a pure sense uh, as an opportunity to kind of, you know, evolve into for for myself and for society, because it really is true. And this sort of blends in the end, you know, last meeting sustainability stuff with, with uh, you know uh, spatial computation and visualization stuff, if you if you have um, those technology at your, at your at your disposal, designing the world efficiently suddenly mm-hmm. becomes a lot easier, right? Yeah. If you want to create infrastructurally optimized built environments uh, that induce the correct consumption pattern, well, you want to model that at scale with vast number of numbers of variables. You want to model your logistics systems and you know how they cascade down to you know, the last meter of service integration in residential worlds, and you want to do that across talented directions. So there is a convergence there. And, and, and I think it's exciting to see how, um, if you take, I think the approach that you take, right? Because, you know, I think you have, as always, a very sober, but deeply curious approach to um, these technology, you take the approach, which is, well, let's not assume that there's a product outcome that we can preempt. Let's not assume there's an app or a commercial application of this stuff that we should assume it's the correct way forward. So many opportunities there. And all we have to do with treasury, right? And this is why it's great. And I'm very happy to be involved with it. And I think I've learned at least one lesson as some kind of entrepreneur is keep it simple or stupid. If we can be a provider of assets, spatial assets, digital environments that, as I say, are well-developed and well-licensed into a world of expanding spatial computing, 
seems like there's a business there, right? Yeah. And so yeah. initially, you know, I, I when I first sort of shared what the you know what, the way you know, I set up this the the, the, tr the treasury concept in my conversation with Matt Ball, um, that's just like standardized version of actually what happened is because it became very clear in conversation with Sharjay and Patrick and Nelson at Zaha, that's you know, the design leadership basically, at the design and design technology leadership of the company, um, and many other offices we're speaking to, and now countless other creators, that um, they themselves understood that this was not about populating a specific product endpoint with cool environments. This was about mm -hmm. making sure that as any of these space technologies mature, that good quality content that's well licensed can be the backbone of it, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm very proud of the fact that it should be more, it, it isn't more complicated to find the business model. I make it more complicated because I'm an idiot, as I've said, <laughs> but the basis of it is simple and that is probably why it will work. Because I, it, 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 will, it forces me to be simple and not obfuscate. Yeah, I mean, the, the big difference between quote unquote content and the kinds of things that you're talking about licensing is that these word they have gone through the design process to serve people. These are for yeah. people. That's what architecture is all about, right? The architecture is for people. And the digital representations that help us get to the final build takes all of that into account through various ways, right? Through yeah. actual design, right? Through uh, stakeholder meetings and what people mm. actually need. And and yeah. so I think, you know, and and there's a lot of other things. There's there's simulation, there's analysis, yeah. there's all these other things that kind of vet and make sure that the, these things are going to work when they're actually built. And we get the benefit of that in the digital version as well. And so there is potential value there for another use right and so i guess the question is and and i've already kind of sort of started to answer this right but why should architects why should firms be thinking about this as there there is value attached to the this part of the process that that they're not thinking about anymore because they're already on to the next project I think there's a number of reasons, right, why why practicing architects and architectural offices should engage with this. And it, it is not quite the same reason for all offices, right? If you are a super premium architect type office, or you are the custodian of what we call um, uh, uh, classic architecture, right? We In our categorization of what we call the supply classes of spatial assets, the premium architecture, which is kind of architect stuff, where there's a, mm -hmm. there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a financial premium attached to the design name design outcome uh, or classic architecture, whether so essentially architects who've gone over history books, right? If you're not in those categories and 99% of architects are not in those categories, and there's, not, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, it's the reality of the world. Their reasons for being involved in in uh, spatial computation and to, you know, to, 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 to get the assets into treasury um, uh, would be slightly different. So you know, I'm just going to explain briefly the treasury sort of business and technical model and then and then kind of unpack from that the, the argument, you know, okay. the different arguments for different kinds of architects. But basically treasury, you know, it, it, thankfully is pretty simple. Has, you know, it's a two-sided model. We have so-called, you know, spatial asset creators and digital environment builders. And then the in the creator side of our product stack, we have what's called the registry. The registry is where anybody that has created a spatial asset can register it for a variety of purposes. You can register it to have it in an archive for private use. You can register it so you can fingerprint it using our fingerprinting technology, which we have developed with Zaha Hadid and will continue to develop with an open source group, which is now 
about to be launched, um, <clears throat> where basically it captures what we call the morphological signature of your asset. Mm. And you can use it for licensing and distribution, right? So you can use it for you know, sorting and archiving, fingerprinting, and what we call syndication, which is basically wide distribution through multiple channels and marketplaces, including Treasury's own marketplace. That's not complicated, right? So those are the three things that the registry essentially does. There's some other things it does, and I'll come back to that in a second. On the demand side of the model, we have what we call a discovery engine, which is essentially like a sexy marketplace to show preview models of assets. You can choose if you are a developer of an Apple headset app, or you are a movie maker that wants a location, or you're a real estate developer that wants to, you know, focus your own project in a, in a marketing app or whatever. Countless use cases where digital environment builders, you know, um, will want to select assets and look at licensing and choose mm -hmm. technical characteristics. So discovery engine helps with that. And it enables that. And we have a bunch of bells and whistles attached. Essentially, it's like a marketplace for cool, pretty assets. You'd look at it and you'd think it looked like Turbo Squid or 3D SketchUp, but it isn't actually the same in any way. Much more technically advanced in some ways, simpler in others. And it legally, is massively more sophisticated, but it basically is a marketplace that can be attached to additional marketplace, you know, attached to our discovery engine and our syndication model to at the games marketplace, which is ongoing, the Roblox marketplace, which is ongoing, <laughs> and you know, Minecraft marketplace, which is ongoing. But anyway, that's the general idea. Now, do you, your question as to why um, uh, what we would call creators, right, specifically architects, would want to be attached to this does differ if um, they are what we call premium or you know, mm -hmm. foundations around classic architecture or the world's conventional architect. Generally speaking, I don't think it's correct to say, right, just to put this in pragmatic terms that if you design an office building, right, as, an, as a standard successful architectural, you know, fund, let's say 10 people, that there'll be an enormous amount of interest to license the design of that for a movie set, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe someone wants to do it, right? But mm -hmm. uh, uh, on the average, there's so many, uh, you know, office buildings in the world that the fact that someone would want to license yours, how, as attractive as it may be, uh, and as functions may be, is relatively low, right? So we can't assume that the majority of architects will be in the business of IP licensing, right? Right. Uh, and, and, and so what they would want to do is basically, um, protect uh, their work, uh, from, um, uh, direct copying by other architects, right? So what they're trying to protect there isn't as it were the style IP, it's just the design work they've done. If the models are out there, they would want to fingerprint their work. So that if another architect wanted to design an office building, just didn't want to do the work, right? They would want to have their work protected from as it were, commercial copying rather than IP piracy, right? So there is an argument for, for fingerprinting their work and preventing it from being copied, but it's not quite the same as, as kind of retaining design IP, which is what the premium architects are very concerned about. They're very concerned about, about their signature designs being used in movie sets or in advertising campaigns, right? And so if we differentiate those two, strictly speaking, they are both IP. One is sexy IP, one is pragmatic, like, legwork, you know, uh, you know, shoe leather IPs. Um, and so different like segments of the profession have different reasons to protect their designs. Now the mm -hmm. copyright of these things, it, it needs a little bit of kind of tweaking in the regulatory terms. It's, there are some complexities that I think need to be ironed out in terms of exactly who owns the copyright for different aspects of the design, you know, the CAD drawings versus the BIM models versus the rendering, 2D renderings versus the 3D real-time rendering. But essentially it's a copyright exercise. And so the premium architects want to, you know, protect stanky design icons and pragmatic architecture just pre pre prevent their work from being ripped off all right yeah but but and so that's the sort of the core of it and translate that into money right where we think there will 
we, we know there's some money where we think there could be a vast amount of money. Well, why we have venture backing and why we're, we're getting more is because when it comes to creating assets for premium digital environments, there's a lot of money in having a well-designed and sexy environment for the staging Taylor Swift's concert, right? Yeah. And, you know, the Taylor Swift or any artist will want to license a beautiful, exciting uh, uh, spatial design, right? Uh, and that's tons of money. Bjarke's, uh, you know, West 57th building, Vaya, has already been in a movie, movie without being yeah. licensed properly, right? Well, mm. if they had the actual asset, they could use it, you know, all sorts of, you know, photoreal quality asset. They could do all sorts of stuff with it. And they, you know, Bjarke would behave at sort of fee. They have access to the building Durst Corporation will not let them have access to, which mm. is the developers of the building. I'm not sure if they still own it. And so you can see that there's a premium licensing piece that is hugely incentivized for, you know, um, uh, premium architects. But pragmatically also it's the case that if you are an architecture office, right, and you do want to, to if you have got a contract, you know, a contract to develop, you know, a whole you know, like blocks worth of buildings, maybe you don't want to design all of it. Maybe you don't want to redesign all of the office buildings. Maybe you don't want to redesign the school. Maybe you can do a search for a specific programmatic and typological specifics and license out a model. So there is an IP market, whether it will make millions of dollars or tens of thousands, I don't know, right? But I think mm -hmm. there's a pragmatic piece there. And so you take the, the core technical commercial proposition, which is kind of IP licensing, both in terms of sexy stuff and pragmatic stuff. You can see that any uh, proper registry of assets is a good idea. What we would like to see basically is a very sensible starting point, which is that people use treasury registry as a, a comparatively I means free or a cheap tool to just archive stuff, right? Even if you don't want to do any licensing, get your assets in, use it as a way to sort your, your, your historical work and gradually get it to a form where you on, on, in, on a, on a, you know, web GL, web-based viewing basis can see what you've done. E yeah. Even just in terms of archiving, you know, Can't offices of yeah. any level of, you know, of, of prominence haven't got actual, you know, you know, sort of, you know, real-time rendered models. And we think that's very useful for all sorts of purposes, internal purposes, sales yeah. purposes, research purposes. So the big kind of, the big value kick is, is IP licensing of premium sexy uh, IP and pragmatic quality design IP. And then, you know, archiving, you know, is the, is the, um, is the sort of bread and butter stuff. But there's one other piece and just kind of finish this piece in that way of value proposition for architecture, which is what comes next in the design profession? Right, who gets to design the digital environments that, right. you know, that Taylor Swift wants? Because then the next generation of design will not be ones where it says, "Great, we'll do the staging here on the stage, the real world concert, and we'll have a you know, fascinating, fantastical staging concept in form." And they'll sit there and say, "Let's design a stage that is a hybrid design proposition that has the same iconic character in a digital environment as it has in the real world." Right. right? And, and that becomes a vast opportunity out for architectural offices because no one in the world of digital environment creation right now can do that. Yep. The people can yep. create fantastic environments that don't have to stand up, right? right. And don't have, you know, sanitation or HVAC or MEP, right? But having that hybrid, you know, opportunity, I think is going to be one of the largest pieces of the operationalization of spatial computation as an opportunity in architects are right now the only people that can do that. So that is a huge thing. It's that the workflow the 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 the, um, the, uh, um, the the financial opportunity isn't just licensing an IP; it's just design work. It's designing for these hybrid use cases. And what that leads to is basically 
back to the archiving piece, because if your workflow does not include a terminus where every piece of work is pragmatically available in a digitally renderable form, you're not in that game. You don't get to sell your work out to people that need digital spatial environments. You're in another world. And, and a lot of architects still think that's the thing. We don't want to be involved in the digital world. And what we're trying to say to them is the digital world is the physical world. Just haven't merged much yet. Mm. But let's start with archiving. Let's evolve the workflows and let's see what's out there. Yeah, because things are, they really are about to change as far as people's personal experience with digital environments, right? Right now, it's very 2D screen. I've got several screens sitting in front of me right now. And the way that I interact with those is through various instruments on my desk. Sometimes it's my finger, but it could be a, a pencil, it could be a trackpad, it could be a keyboard, it could be a mouse, when it, it could be something that sits in your hand. But it's it's a 2D experience, not a 3D immersive experience. And Okay, not everybody can afford a $500 or a $1,000 or a $3,500 headset, but these, it literally is like these are the covered wagon days of, of this. And it, it won't be long until everybody is going to have these. And, and are they going to be using it all the time to your point? Probably not, especially in the form factor that they are right now, right? It's just not going to be comfortable for that long. But I've been in VR experiences where I'm disappointed when I come out of them. It literally is. It literally is better in there. It's better in that building that I designed than it is in this room that I'm actually sitting in. Mm -hmm. And enough people have that experience. They're going to recognize the power of being in, for all intents and purposes, is a very real space, no matter how real it actually is or not. If it, if it does exist in the planet or not, it's still going to be so compelling to them that it's going to change their perception about why they would want to participate in things like that. And yeah, the Apple headset's 3,500 bucks, but this is the very first one. And it's basically developer hardware at this point, right? Yeah. And it's for the yeah. people who want to get in early and figure this out now, because when the cheap ones come out, when the affordable ones, I should say, come out, it's, it's going to be, they want to be ready for that. Right. And so I, I really do feel like because architects are so good at understanding what it takes to design space for people, it's the same use case. Like you said, it's there's there's some weird disconnection between the digital world and the physical world. And you're saying that, no, they're actually together. Right. <laughs> so I, I think that's absolutely true. And architects are going to be the ones to bridge the gap. It's not it's not the tech. It's going to be the experiences that people have. And we take our jobs really seriously. We have to obey the code. We have to actually solve real problems for people. There is going to be an additional layer of just full-on fun that can happen. And, and I think that is going to be a huge driver as well for people. When, you know, a lot of the use case around Meta is for collaborative work environments. And I know Apple is talking about that a lot too. But it's literally, I think, the the thing that's really going to lead to the breakthroughs is the uh, is the entertainment side of things it is just the pure joy of things that people are going to experience when they're when they're using these technologies i think you're right and um so you know through through, through the um but partly because i think it's an it, it's it, it's a sort of honest way of explaining myself and the work that i've done the work that i'm doing and i think that knowing a fair few of the people who listen to this podcast i would kind of was kind of is kind of almost all of them i've not met um, uh, in person, 
I, I would like to have a sense of kind of what kind of person, what kind of work I've really been doing and what, what I'm involved with. But now, thank you for the cue. I'm going to switch into sort of, sort of pitching mode. Okay. Rather than explaining mode. Because I, because, I, because I think that the opportunity for creativity and for experiential kind of uh, you know, value is very, very considerable. It's not really pitching by this kind of like, you know, expansive, right. like lovely thinking works. And I think that, um, I just don't think people realize how good this stuff is, right? Mm -hmm. If, if we take metas, um, uh, uh, like metaverse stuff, everyone was shitting on them, right? Mm -hmm. And they've been shitting on them for years. Oh my God, Reality Labs have been spending $10 billion a year. What the hell are they doing with their money? Well, mm -hmm. what they've been doing there with their money is building an infrastructure that is public. Right, which is being stress tested every month. You know, pathetic numbers of users, ten thousand you know, here and there, but it's incrementing. You know, putting headsets are coming on and off, and you know the servers are spinning up, and technology is happening, and it's all stress testing. No one else is doing basically. I mean, it, obviously, Fortnite, other platform comes to doing it, but in, in a slightly different way. Meta was stress testing a global scale infrastructure for billions of people and quietly developing technology. And so when you saw, you know, late last year that they did actually have photo real avatars, right? You, you could see that the, you know, the, the podcast between you know, Lex Friedman and mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg, you know, mm -hmm. was an instantiation of a post, you know, uncanny valley photo real avatar that they're going to put on these environments. And it's mm -hmm. just it's light, it's night and day, right? The moment that businesses have the opportunity and users have the business to have photo real avatars, they will use them, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, in our case, we think that's right because they'll suddenly need photo real environments, which they currently don't have on Meta Horizon. But the point is, there's lots of technology that's popping up in terms of its prominence, and people don't know that it's there and it's ready. We take Apple, for example. Apple headset already is offering photo real avatar experience for mm -hmm. FaceTime, right? I don't think right. it's as good as the Meta offering, but that is going to be a competitive dynamic. And so people don't think that every piece of the story we've been presented so far in terms of experiential like value, a little wow factor, which I'm coming to at one second, is about to be very, very credible and compelling. I just think we're not looking closely and I don't want it to work, right? But it is working. And so if you take that point that the technology is reaching this, you know, sort of maturity, there's a takeoff point. I, I don't think it's just the case to kind of expand on, on what you said, the entertainment is going to be a great piece of this whole thing. Actually, entertainment is going to be the thing, if we take entertainment in, in all of its forms, you know, game, movies, uh, art, uh, creative technology, uh, yeah. uh, sports, sports, but I mean, particularly creative technologies, uh, 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 creative industries, conventional creative industries, uh, that piece of entertainment, I think, but to some extent, also the other pieces of entertainment will be the things that drive technology forward, right? Uh, I, I, I think if we take like artists, for example, and movie makers, well, that the amount of um, um, sort of uh, iteration that will happen for art and and movie making, narrative, uh, you know, uh, long form movie making to kind of embrace this medium, the amount of iteration that will require that will feedback from the technology to the experience and so forth is mm. is vast, right? Mm -hmm. And I think um, that is going to be one of the most interesting things to see how creators don't just, as it were, embrace a new medium, is how they lead a new medium to its maturity and every other yeah. instantiation of it. I yeah. think, you know, things like, um, you know, sport, as it were, uh, uh, that are, I would say, by, by their nature, less creative and core intent, they will probably, they will probably reinforce 
the infrastructural aspect, like how does it work, you know, to be concurrent for a billion users with you know, minimal uh, latency and still be photoreal and so forth. And what, you know, what is, what is telepresence or, you know, uh, photoreal, you know, avatar presence in those kinds of environments. I mean, that, that, that's more of a technical implication in terms of development, but just in terms of create, I think, I think the creators will be the ones that the, the, the most creative applications, I think, of space technology will be the ones that help us understand what kinds of form factors should we have? Do we need haptic suits? Do we need true? Can we have? Can we have, do we need full AR? Right, which is where you know you have an unencumbered view and you, as it were, project a digital image mm -hmm. into the retina in some way or across a you know interstitial screen. Or can we have currently have, which is pass through VR, like Apple mm -hmm. doesn't really have a true like viewing system. You know, it, it, it requires external cameras and it fakes mm -hmm. the environment with that with those cameras. Um, yeah. All that stuff. I think creators will be helping us to understand the, the creative industries. Including architecture, we ones that were the iterating fastest in terms of what does this do for users? What does it mean in terms of a you know experiential payoff? I mean, the the wow factor. What does that mean in terms of you know monetization? What does it mean in terms of consumer loyalty? What does it mean in terms of creative expression? What does it mean in terms of regulation? I I think maybe the case. I don't want to make this argument too strong because I I probably can't make it credibly. If I think it's probably true, I think the creative industries probably are the ones when certain kinds of technology become available that enable them to become mature so that they are stable for all users, right? You know, um, that's probably true, at least for some industries and some, you know, some epochs, but I definitely think it's true now is that the, 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 the advanced creative uses will, will be the ones to stabilize the sticky, cost-effective, money-generating, socially acceptable uses that then can be you know, universalized by different applications. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And and the so so one of the the interesting features that I just read about that's coming with with the Disney Plus app as an example on the Apple Vision Pro is that you can you can watch a film, but you are sitting in an environment that of your choosing. So you could mm -hmm. choose to sit in Luke's land speeder while you watch a movie like Star Wars. Yeah. You can choose to be on Tony Stark's balcony overlooking Manhattan while you watch, you know, Iron Man. And I think what's so interesting about that is that, you know, again, it's not just about the experience of watching the, the movie and being able to look around wherever you want. It's actually about customizability. It's about being in a space that you feel comfortable in or don't feel comfortable in on purpose. You might, you know, I can think about like the way that there's going to be genres that that collide with architecture here because it is spatial in nature that we haven't gotten to experience before. And I think that's going to like, to your point about pushing new boundaries when a new platform like this comes out to enable creators to kind of blow our minds with, you know, th the hardware manufacturers and the software manufacturers are putting this out there with their best guess, but they're really saying, I want to see what you people make with this. I want to see what the what every what those artists can actually do with it because th that's where it actually is going to I think be extremely interesting. I think I think so a couple of things there. Um thank you by the way for setting this up so beautifully. We we didn't script this really. Um and so the audience needs to know that uh, uh, that uh, evidence is perfectly organically setting up exactly what we're doing, which is it's very convenient for me. <laughs> I'll slip Great. you the five gold I kicked back after the shots. I mean, uh, um, so the first point is just a, a pragmatic one, which is that it, it, a lot of experiences um, 
uh, well, I mean, the, all experiences need a, need a digital spatial environment in, in the spatial computing application mm-hmm. universe, but most of them right now don't have that, uh, you know, as a, as a premise, right? Mm-hmm. The, it, games do, you need an environment for a game, but people think of something to do in a digital spatial environment, like a phone call, for example, like a FaceTime call with a, with a photo real avatar. Well, you don't really want that to be in a black box, right? right. Which is how they presented it, you know, when they right. did the demo with Lex Friedman and Mark Zuckerberg, you want an interesting environment. And then the question is, well, what kind of environment do you want it to be in? Likewise, when Apple is presenting, what they appear to think is the primary, at least or at least the most stable and credible use case for Apple Vision headset, which is productivity, right? Just do your work with a gigantic screen that is in your environment. And then they say, well, you could swap your room or your office for a mountain scene or a, you know, a, a, a forested glade or whatever. Our job is to be applying developers to the best environments, right? Of every sort, right? Mm-hmm. You know, photoreal nature scans, classical locations, interesting workrooms, so forth. So the, 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 our business model we think is clear to explain very much given exactly what you've described, what is very clearly unfolding. And that is distinct from the metaverse proposition where the environment's fixed. It's a virtual mm-hmm. world that you just inhabit, you don't choose the environment, right? Mm-hmm. So that is one of the big, you know, shifts for us in the narrative is that spatial computation is inherently about those environments, more so I think than metaverse narratives as they were. But we think we're well positioned, right? We're saying, as I said, we want to supply well-designed, well-licensed environments for every possible spatial computing application. And we'll see, right? Apple developers are not knocking on our door right now because we no one knows who the fucking are. But it's coming, becoming clear that the ecosystem of development is 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 about to become a real thing. We want everybody in Apple development to have Apple, in the Apple developer ecosystem to have a, a treasury a discovery engine and a, and a treasury registry account so they can get their assets in, they can explore assets, they can in, include in their projects. Um, uh, but that also you know, sits exactly on the, what we discussed about in terms of the architectural design opportunity. Architects should consider that they should be the people, essentially the only people that are credibly designing environments for these things. Because if you think about it, right, we're going to cycle through a bunch of crap for the next year or two or three, right? And people go, yeah. why am I sitting in baseline case, a, an AR version of my own messy office? Great. I'm going right. to swap it for an Apple environment. Why am I sitting in a forested glade with chirping woodpeckers? I don't give a shit about that. Can't I find a more interesting product of the environment? So that then becomes a design horizon that has never existed before, mm-hmm. right? right. Uh, you know, what is it to create a product of the environment, right? And so, mm-hmm. and so I think it isn't just the case that we're going to be licensing out, as I say, legacy stuff. There are all these use cases that are, revol- that are, that are evolving. And guess what? How long will it be before somebody gets designed for them a custom productivity environment for a digital spatial environment? Absolutely. And it goes, yeah. why the fuck is this not in my actual office? This is great. Right. Can you, can you see yeah. how the, you know, the, this yeah. what I mean by iteration, right? That the creative industries end up being the ones that start pulling all these opportunities forward in a way. So then what right. that takes us to is the second thing, just, just to finish on this, this point, is that when you start thinking through that these digital spatial environments have all sorts of implications for the user experience. And some of it's obviously just pure entertainment, some of it's you know, m- more intimate. When you, when you look at that long tail of environments, you start getting into health and education and mental health and mm-hmm. psychedelic experience, psychedelic investigation. And all of those things have been extremely difficult to evolve in design terms because 
it's very hard to test how effective a spatial environment is for educational right. purposes or mental health purposes or, you know, physical recuperation purposes or you know, any sort of psychedelic religious, spiritual investigations. Guess what? That is very easy to do with the photo yeah. real environment. Right. So just, just, just to say another thing we'll be launching soon is our science project where we have a bunch of partners in the uh, professions around human cognition and uh, uh, the, the spatial cognition domains. But it, we're, work, we're working on exactly that question with, and we're trying to put in architects to say, look, you're well positioned not just to drive practical use cases and value in these digital spatial, um, in these spatial computation applications, but to, to, to be technical and creative leaders in the non-enterprise, non-commercial uh, use cases that these technologies unlock. This episode is made possible with support from Avail. In a world where precision meets creativity, where every line drawn holds the power to innovate, people like you are shaping the future. But let's face it, in the realm of design, the unknown is your least favorite companion. You've been stranded on the island of inefficient software, lost in the fog of endless searching for the right content. It's time to embark on a new journey, a journey to clarity, efficiency, and design excellence. It's time to get off that island and away from the unknown. Introducing Avail, the beacon in your design odyssey. Say goodbye to the daunting 10 to 20 minutes wasted per search, the costly interruptions in your creative flow. With Avail, your team will zip through content discovery, focusing more on designing and less on searching. Imagine a world where you can stop constantly fighting the costly fires caused by pulling content from past projects, building from scratch, or relying on personal libraries. Avail isn't just a tool, it's a revolution for AECO firms. Organize, manage, and navigate your project information with a leader that's proven in reliability, relatability, and success. Join the ranks of the top AECO firms who've already chosen Avail. In just 30 days, you could deploy Avail and witness a dramatic reduction in costly design errors. Whether it's your first CMS or you're considering a switch, there's someone you should meet. Will Rouse, your guide to all things Avail. Schedule an appointment and explore Avail's capabilities, onboarding programs, and professional services. Don't let your designs be clouded by inefficiency. Clear skies are just a click away. Go to getavail.com stranded and book a meeting with Will to start your Avail journey today. Avail, where your best design is just a search away. My thanks to Avail for supporting this episode of the Troxel Podcast. And now let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the the mental health, healthcare, recuperation. I, I do think it applies in in athletics and things as well. Where there's going to be, I, I, it's it's going to open up a whole new world of research. And yeah. again, how s people who make space, who develop space architecture, can play a role in that directly is going to be absolutely incredible. And I, it's funny because there's a lot of projects that we did when I was working as an architect that never went through. And and the business unit always said, those are the best pro projects because we got paid to do the design and we didn't have to go through <laughs> the More actual pain, building of it. Construction, <laughs> the, yeah. pain, the pain of construction. And the, the, the finger pointing and the lawyers and the litigation and all of the things that happen. Um, to, it's, a, it's incredible that it actually happens, right? I, I see it all the time and I'm always in awe that, that we actually get anything built. But 
you're going to get to participate and be a leader in the actual good part, right? Which is it, you just deliver the experience, the raw experience to people. And what's going to happen is it's going to affect the real world. There are going to be people who experience these things in the digital world, and it will, when they take the headset off, and they're ultimately disappointed by their actual messy office and their actual disaster of a house or whatever it is. And they're going to be like, oh, I need to upgrade this part of my life now because I just experienced how great it can be over there. And it is going to it is going to come back into the physical and they are going to inform each other, I think, in that way. And that's great for architects. I think you're right. I, I definitely don't think that's correct. And I think I think that part of it will be just as you, you know, as, as I think we both agree that there's going to be you know, hybridization at every level, not just hybridization of large scale, like, you know, uh, huge entertainment offerings that have a physical and a digital, you know, environmental kind of instantiation as a stage for music concert, which is a digital stage for hundreds of millions of users that are on some kind of virtual environment. But I also think, and this is, you know, a longer conversation, and uh, but I, I think probably this is the kind of thing that's going to happen is that what good design actually means is going to get reimagined a little mm. bit, right? The problem with architecture, uh, in one way, right? I mean, I don't want to elaborate too much on theory here, but I, it does matter to me quite a lot. Is that it isn't really, I think, delivering much quality. All right. Well, one of the reasons I think architecture gets sidetracked into kind of like you know just aesthetics, which is essentially pretty speculative. It's legitimate insofar as it goes, but people can't really you know adjudicate aesthetics very much unless you start going down sort of you know, stupid classical theories of you know aesthetic or whatever. It ends up being relatively relative, right? And fine, you know, people can like what they want. But I think um, at the end of the day, most users of architecture, which is 99.9% .9 of the world's you know, historical population, they're for the buildings that are just badly designed, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why they're badly designed is that they just aren't very amenable to adaptation in real time, right? And so there's this been kind of chimera, this kind of like, you know, this siren song of modularity, right? How do we create environments that can be adapted and structures mm -hmm. that can be reconfigured and so forth? And in, one of the reasons I keep coming back is because it is the future of all technology, right? If you look at technology that, that we have, we call technology today, I mentioned the two types of technology that, that all of this is concerned with is the kind of, the, what I call the Silicon Valley pipe stack. So you have, you know, storage and computation and you have, you know, memory and you have networking and you have, then you have like the, you know, the, 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 the device universe, you have desktop devices and you have, you know, uh, you know, you know uh, viewing systems and you have, you know, uh, mobile devices, that's the Silicon Valley stack, that's conventional, you know, technology. Um, and then you have specialized spatial computation stuff like in and around that. Now, um, all of that is infinitely modular, right? No one builds fixed stuff, right? It, it pretty much every layer of that can be, you know, reconfigured. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Only the final form factor is fixed. Even then you want to make that more and more and more flexible, right? And so I think. One of the things that will happen isn't just that we have more hybrid designs, you know, spatial design, di di uh, di digital environmental designs that have, you know, physical environment designs hybridized, you know, together. I think that will brand physical design towards a much more modularized system. So it would be another vector pushing in that era, it, in that direction, which has not really worked so far. But if users, to your, to, to, to your point, go, oh, well, you know, I don't like my office you know, the, the real office, my digital office working environment is so great. Oh, I'd like my, you know, my, my physical office to be like it. And then they go back into the digital office and say, oh, I'm just going to change the, I'll change the color. I'll change the, you know, the layout, I'll change the lighting, I'll change, you know, and then they're stuck with a, you know, so, so modularization will become a more of a hot topic as, hmm. you know, the physical environmental design and digital environmental design hybrid. I think that's very good.
right? I think that's very good. The way I describe this, again, this is my third or fourth dig to architecture, and this is probably the biggest dig that I will make on this, uh, that I'll make public with you, Evan, maybe, maybe <laughs> some more later, some privately, um, is what I call the, you know, architecture is kind of topped out of what I call the, 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 um, the banana phone era, right? Uh, in the history of telephony, right? Landline phones topped out at a point where technology just wasn't advancing, right? You had a copper wire, you had a mm -hmm. you know a, a magnetic you know tr transceiver, uh, and that was it, right? It was pretty good. Nothing else was going on. So what happens to you know design of telephones? They're just getting more and more elaborate, and so you have you know uh, you know you know sort of throwback Bakelite phones and Mickey Mouse phones and you know all sorts of concepts and. And ultimately, you get totally kind of frivolous things like banana phones, right? Things that look like, you know, there's nothing to do with the experience of technology, right? And, <laughs> and that, I think, is in some ways descriptive of, of where architectural design innovation has gone. We just mm. have frivolous design concepts because technically mm. the, the, the experience of buildings is not getting better. Right? Mm. So you have people going to buildings that are incredibly sophisticated. I mean, like in, in terms of their aesthetic and their kind of, right. you know, the, the way that they have been formulated in design terms. Are they better? Are they better than walking in the woods? Are they better than you know classical design? Are they better than all sorts of vernacular design? I don't know, right? But the point is that I my premise is that one reason why it's relatively easy to critique a lot of the pretensions or the assumptions of value in the aesthetics aspect of architectural design is that the technical aspect of built design is not. It is when I say technical, I don't mean like construction. I mean the technical and spatial configurative, the impact on the user. Mm -hmm. The opportunity space for the user is not really improving, frankly, mm -hmm. right? If you take a look at Vizier's design theories for how human habitation should be, we haven't really advanced on that. People will have to criticize them for it, but we haven't really improved that, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, we're still using books like Noifax, this incredibly ridiculous book of standard designs to I, kind of guide I us. Right over, right? I have them right over Well, there. everyone, everyone <laughs> does, right? That's the point. It's still, it's still current. Right. My yeah. point is that if we, if, if we, if and anyone would, and most architects won't, because this is why it's, you know, it's a rocketed point, but I think that the spatial computation uh, evolution makes this um, an interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. If there is actually the opportunity to rethink the experiential potential of design, and one dimension of that because the hybridization of physical spatial environments and digital spatial environments is modularity of environments, right? Configurative quality and the power and the potential of reconfiguration. I think we're going to get beyond the banana from era. I think one thing that will happen, the, the, the banana from era of architecture, and one thing, the, the one thing that will happen, which probably will horrify a lot of designers, we may go down the road of vandalization of form factor. We don't talk about form factors in architectural design. We, well, we probably should. Right? We talk about typology, which is one of the poorly defined words in history. Hmm. But form factors in, 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 in Silicon Valley technology stack is well defined, right? Yeah. How is this thing physically configured? And if you look at buildings, residences, you know, I li live in San Francisco and I'm walking around my neighborhood, every single residential building is utterly different mm -hmm. in Cold Valley where I live, which is beautiful and completely absurd. Every single stack, every single quantity, every single roof is different. It's completely right. absurd. Because I think, again, incredibly controversial, I'll be shouted down for this if anyone even listens this far. Um, that probably what will happen if we think through the implications of hybridization of physical spatial design and um, digital spatial design and the modularization of, of spatial configurations inside physical designs is that we'll get things that look a bit like in typological terms, the equivalent of iPhones. We'll get a lot more 
exogenous standardization and we get a lot more endogenous yeah. novelty. Everybody's phone is different in terms of the wallpaper and the apps and how they configure the apps and the expenses they have and how much is on and how much is off and what it's used for. And that I think is an interesting potential in terms of architecture is mm. actually the structural aspect of architecture stabilizes to historically what it was, which was a set of vernaculars because that is the efficient way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Vernacular architecture is basically deployment of efficient techniques. Mm. No craftsman was just going to invent something speculatively because you'd have to work out how to make the mortar work and cut the brick and you know, you'd do what they did because they knew how to do it effectively. I think we may trend back to um, technological and structural uh, vernaculars or standardized techniques, which is exactly what we do in the rest of technology and infinitely speculative and experimental configurations in some other more modular way. So that's a deep, over, over elaborate way of saying, uh, I think that the potential of digital spatial environments to unlock whole new dimensions of potential or at least put additional pressure on, on the evolution of architectural design towards modularity, uh, at least modularized configurations of the experiential uh, environment, I think is going to be very interesting. I, I agreed. So in order to get there, you're saying the call to action is to basically catalog the existing stock of the models that we have. And so tell us like what that process is like, because the, the, the models are, are complex. They're way more complex than what needs to happen in an experience like this. But how far do you go when, tell me, is this geometry only? Is it geometry and textures? Is there more data attached to it? And, and does it need to be redone? Does it need to, can it go in exactly how it is? Like just practically for an architect who's listening to this, who would be interested in creating their catalog, what's that process? Okay. So, so we, so we're doing this, I think the correct way, which is we're doing, we're doing everything as best we can step by step to the limit of what is required on either sides of the, of the, as it were, the content market, mm -hmm. right? And so there would be a way if you thought from abstract from sort of abstract or pure perspective to say, well, look, we would need to have like, you know, perfectly labeled BIM models and CAD underlays and texturings, yeah. right? And, right. and we would need to have all the licensing clearance for the, you know, the, the subcontractor that did the landscaping and then the rendering contractor that did the 2D designs for this display. And then the people that did the boards oh. for that display and then the 3D rendering. So there's, there, there are ways in terms of like, you know, uh, um, um, uh, inventorization of the asset base inside what we call inside each scene, each piece of licensable content we call the scene. And there are assets within that. Mm -hmm. you, you could you could have infinite you know requirements to to set all that up technically and legally. And actually, we started that. We thought, well, let's just make sure everyone has the correct models and the correct licenses before we start licensing stuff out. That's not the correct way of doing it. The correct way of doing it is to get everything in in some way and to assert copyright and to begin the process of, of effective inventorization, right? So mm. what we're basically saying is all the supply classes that we think are relevant to licensable use cases, which is conventional architecture, premium architecture, classic architecture, um, all buildings currently in the world today, uh, uh, um, infrastructure and monuments, um, uh, natural environment, art and film, right? Those are our supply classes. Let's get everything in. And let's work it all out. Because as far as we're concerned, it's very basic. All that we do in the, in the first instance, if not, something does not have a meshed model that we can present as a 3D preview in our web-based viewer, we say, mm -hmm. give us a 2D cutout of your asset. We'll put that into the 3D viewer, which looks 
actually okay. Least and we'll see who what, yeah. And we'll see if anyone's <laughs> interested in it, right? right? But what's what's very helpful in this regard, and something like the, one of the main things I've learned about this whole space is how powerful the law is to facilitate um, value if you do that thing. If you say mm -hmm. this really is mine, right? Mm -hmm. You assert your you know ownership of your of your own copyrights. I mean the um, the, the thing that shocked me was that when we were presenting our business model and our platform to our extremely fancy, expensive lawyers, we have our lawyers of Wilson something near the same lawyers at Apple, and we're very happy to have them. You have to kind of go through a beauty contest before they, before they even take you on. Uh -huh. We were showing them our contracts, and then we, I was sitting in a meeting with the principal, um, with the principal, uh, um, uh, with the senior partner on, on our account, and um, uh, he was looking at our um, content and uh, our kind of contract templates, and essentially was saying, I could see his, I could see his face essentially going, well, there's nothing here that's novel from my perspective. We're like, what? What technology do we have to build before you guys get impressed, right? And the truth is that he realized copyright is very straightforward. If you make it, you own it. Mm -hmm. And then the courts will work out what that is, mm -hmm. right? Which is magical in some ways. I think it's far too restrictive, actually. And we have to work with that in a more precise and technical way. But the truth is that um, copyright is very, very broad and very, very effective in, in protecting creators. Mm -hmm. And so what you discover is that um, rather than having to do a very technical model, leaving it technically, to position the people that own content strongly uh, as contributors of value into the spatial computation uh, era, just get it archived. Because otherwise, no one's ever going to know it's yours. All right. Yeah. And yeah. so technically speaking, we can only fingerprint things. We can add a morphological signature to things the more we have in terms of a sophisticated model. But we can facilitate you asserting your copyright um, uh, immediately that you archive things in the treasury registry. And what's interesting is that, and the, I think a lot of people, there's some misunderstandings. When we say we're doing a fingerprinting project, and we've designed a morphological signature that involves you know, a variety of different kind of mathematical and technical ways of, of you know, uniquely describing uh, spatial assets. Um, uh, people think, oh, well, that can break through in terms of law. No, it's not a breakthrough in terms of law. This is why, you know, uh, uh, our lawyer at Wilson was, 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 was exactly right, which is in the end, all that a fingerprinting project can do is, is give more guidance to the court, to somebody who says, you've stolen my stuff, right? Show me the, show me the, you know, the, the, the um, uh, show me the, um, the, uh, uh, the signature to the suggest this stuff is, um, uh, uh, owned already. And then the courts will make that decision. There isn't a technical way to adjudicate legally who owns what. So what we can do is facilitate that with a, sing a signature mm -hmm. project. But the first thing is just to get your copyright set up, yeah. register your stuff. Um, and we, we, that's the job. That's one of the big jobs is to make that machine clear. Um, I would say that um, uh, the, the inventorization piece, right, is much simpler than people think, right? It isn't a technical process. It's basically just getting assets in thinking through how, you know, people want to protect their assets, which are ones that they think are most likely to be misused. Uh, and then we can position ourselves as custodians of the copyright to, 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 to special assets. The, the key point here, right, that, that is actually, uh, that is arising today, um, isn't, sits on the, pr the principle that people want to use a registry and archiving system, which is that the main vector of threat, right, um, uh, is, um, is basically, uh, AI trained libraries, right? It isn't that there's going to be individual use cases that come and pick off your stuff because that stuff right. is relatively easy to go against. Uh, and so basically you can find up, 
you can find out um, which assets are um, uh, being pirated by individual users pretty straightforwardly. And it's just very binary in that case. Essentially, what you want is a situation where if somebody's making money sufficiently, you can go and sue them. If not making money, you're just going to ignore it. That's how copyright work works today. Right? You don't sue people that lend each other books or lend each other CDs or play each other Spotify. Um, and uh, so you go after monetizable use cases. That's the standard base case of copyright infringement, and it's you know that's in, uh, unfolding in in in, a, in, in, its, in the normal way, right? You can use fingerprinting to protect you know assets from being uploaded to platform, but it's still all just standard copyright infringement stuff. The new thing in this uh, you know debate is basically massive ingestion of copyrighted content into machine learning training training databases, right? And although a lot of people that have done that are spending a lot of money to kind of claim that this is some fair use or isn't really using, you know, copyrighted material at all. The law is coming out on both sides of that, right? Some you know, law is saying, oh, fair use can be expanded to cover training libraries. Other law is saying, no, no, you can't take any copyright content into your training library. Our view is creators should get ahead of AI ingestion on a point of principle. Don't let anybody get your value for free. Right. Mm -hmm. No matter what the law says, get ahead of it. Right. And so what we're now doing, right. So this is part of you know, the announcement that's coming out is going to create is not, I'm not just saying to them what I've just said to you, which is, Hey, you should archive your staff for the purpose, just establish copyright and principle and thinking through licensing opportunities, getting your, you know, your imagery of assets together and gradually, you know, creating, you know, even just preview models of your whole, you know, portfolio of work. We're not saying to them, make sure your stuff is not stolen at massive scale. Because mm -hmm. that's something the treasury can do. We can go to the platforms as on the brokers and say, hey, open AI, hey, you know, um, you know, uh, whoever else is building, you know, large scale uh, training models for every category of copyrighted content. Just don't absorb this stuff. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you think it's copyrighted, just don't do it. On a, bet, on, on a, on a, on a, on a, um, a good faith basis, people don't want you to use this stuff. Right. And so if you are going to use the staff, you will be direct to contravening the intentions of the creators. And I think that best practice, good space exercise is what in the end will define why archived content, fingerprinted content is protected. Right. If you, if you go back to the YouTube case, Google sat there for 10 years, it's a slightly different argument from OpenAI, but it sat there for 10 years saying, we don't distribute copyrighted content. We have what's called safe harbor under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Right. Users are all working out themselves. It's all a big mystery to us, which is a black box, and we don't get sued for this. And then they thought, well, why don't we turn around and become good copyright actors? Why don't we yeah. work in good faith with owners of licenses, use yeah. a copyright ID system, and ask users of obviously copyrighted content to pay for it? And that is what we think is going to happen. But that's the second reason why we would encourage you know people that own anything that's worth copyrighting, whether it's premium architecture, traffic architecture, or kind of just standard quality architecture to register this stuff is that as our fingerprinting model improves, we'll be able to prevent it being, you know, used in any platform, but already right now we can say on a good faith basis on their behalf for free, uh, it's not for free, but it's basically, I mean, a fraction of the cost it would, it, it, it would cost them directly and probably it'd be a little more effective to go to the massive ingestor of content. Do not ingest this content. It's not for you, whether or not yeah. copyright says you can do it. This is the iTunes to Napster analogy, right? It's like people are all pirating music. They're, they're taking all this music and iTunes, Steve Jobs said, 
sell all your songs for 99 cents in a digital format and people will show up and they will do that because that's what people they actually want to own their music yeah it was it was totally true it was just that thing did not exist there was no alternative to napster to get digital a digital format of your music right and so by creating that platform it just created it, it didn't just create a business it created a great business but it created a way for people to do exactly what they wanted to do legally right yeah, I think, so it's really Napster, right? It's a very interesting case, right? Napster was the technical, technological liberation of content, which mm-hmm. Spotify then, you know, kind of pulled back into the licensed era, right? And we like to think we're that convergence at the same time, but but mm-hmm. but but, but what, what we call you know, spatial asset content, three D like environments and buildings, so forth. At scale, has never been released into the world. There is no, you know, like you know, content based. Um, asset base that you could absorb into a peer-to-peer sharing system like Napster and distribute for free, right? And that's why this is the interesting critical moment in time where we would encourage architects not to sit there and say, well, you know, we'll see how this plays out. Because when they start releasing their content, when, when anybody starts releasing content, it's going to get pulled in, right? There's no, there's no way you can prevent it from being, you know, pulled into, to, you know, to, 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 you know, to training libraries and free distribution right. systems. So the best thing you can do is get ahead of it, not just yeah. because of fingerprinting, because fingerprinting never worked for individual DRM cases, right? If you, you be very careful about thinking about how you fingerprint digital assets because it doesn't work for DRM, you can't prevent copying, right? And you don't want to go after individual copying uses. All you want to do with, you know, with fingerprinting is just make sure the platforms can check what is being uploaded at massive scale, right? right? right. Yeah. Uh, so they can become your friends in terms of distribution and restriction. But then ultimately, it's a question of making sure that, you know, the, the training libraries are being good corporate citizens. They go, you know, you use leapfrog all the fingerprint piece and go straight to just be good to creators. And that's kind of what we'd like to establish. I do think one of the most important things to come out of this conversation is that cre- creators of special content, whether it is, you know, movie makers, artists, architects, um, and anyone, you know, uh, who owns special content that is going to be used at scale, just get used to the idea that you should protect what you own and that people are coming to rip it off. And no matter what legal argument they use, it is yours. Inversely, don't be a stick in the mud. Don't just say no to everything, right? Yeah, I mean, right. That, 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 that's just to kind of shift a little bit into, into the next part of this conversation, I think, which is that AI is very useful and gener- generative content is gonna be very you know, powerful. And at some point, procedural generation of 3D environments will get very, very good. I mean, we're solid three or four years out from that. But yes, yes, let's, la- let's let generative content flourish, but let's make sure that creators are fully protected and encouraged and you know, elevated in the process. But I think that if we can be in a situation where not only are we preventing generic AI uh, uh, asset generators from just sucking in um, training content as spatial assets become available to these machine learning training platforms, um, that we actually have custom trained libraries, custom trained models that can, that are on private libraries that can generate um, much more authentic, even licensed generative output, hmm. right? I mean, we haven't got, we're not ready to announce exactly what we're doing in this piece yet, but some of our creators have already started training, custom training machine learning models on their digital spatial asset content, 3D content. And we are wanting to help them position generative outputs in platforms through license arrangements, through custom generators and so forth. Now that's already happening in the 2D image space. Right, that you have, you know, yep. custom training and licensed generation gen- generator outputs 
But what we'd like to do, you know, is to leapfrog all of the conversation right now and say, look, let's get all the library of spatial, digital spatial assets protected, both through fingerprinting and through a good faith request. Do not inject like robots.txt here yeah, on the internet. Right. Don't suck in my website. Don't suck in my content. Um, and inversely could facilitate massively more uh, uh, aesthetically credible, um, uh, illegally you know, amenable uh, and financially viable uh, AI uh, machining, AI generators, generate generated content um, in collaboration with creators and platforms. Right? We don't want to be the people that say, like the you know, Society of Authors Guild, I think it's called, um, said to Google, "Don't ingest our books." Google said, well, "We want to make a giant shot out of your book," and they said, "No, how dare you!" Um, and it was just giant, the Google Books project kind of collapsed because the Authors yeah. Guild said they don't want to do it. We don't want to be in that kind of copyright, mm. you know, caught situation. But we do think it's time to fully assert what the platforms are gradually learning, which is you shouldn't screw creators and creating yeah. trillions of dollars of value. Let's all be pragmatically, let's all be friends and, and see how this plays out on a constructive basis if we can. Let's talk about the financial side. So you've talked about a marketplace where licensing could happen, but there's also kind of just the, the nuts and bolts of getting content into this. Who pays for that? Yeah. How, how does that work for creators and, and what would they be looking at? Well, so a lot of this is evolving, right? I mean, in sort of, in sort of clumsy, you know, uh, but, but sort of money venture times, we are you know, in, in, in our product market state finding phase. We have product, we have customers on both sides. We have some narrative that we think is about to become massively more relevant. And this conversation definitely is part of that. We don't exactly know the best way of doing it, right? But I think it would be correct to say we have a pricing model, or an operationalization model, onboarding model that is stable. Um, I think the best way of thinking of it in very broad brush terms is what we want to happen is that the onboarding of content and what we call the pre-listing, onboarding of content from creators in these different supply classes, architecture, film, and so forth, is staggeringly easy to get your stuff into the registry in the first instance so that you can do what we call pre-listing, just get a, a snapshot of it, a 2D image of some sort out onto the marketplace side, see what the market signal is. Do people want to mm. license this stuff, whether mm. it's a movie environment or it's a building or it's a piece of art that has a spatial character or it's the you know the 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 the, the real world in terms of you know real you know live locations anywhere in the world natural environments right i mean it's you probably what you're linked to with podcasts is a bunch of demos of the product so people can see roughly what i'm talking about but essentially the point is that we want to be very to get content in and be visible in some way and somebody says well i'm kind of interested in this for my movie or mm -hmm. for my Apple heads in the vision app or my, you know, my metaverse project or my, you know, healthcare app, we will work out pricing signal and that will then inform exactly who pays for the onboarding, right? Mm. What we do know is that some designers want to be upfront in front of the market. They want their shit to be ready to go. Right. Yeah. And so they are right. already paying or they've already done the work because of the way they evolved their workflow many years ago. Um, to be ready for real-time rendering. So we take Zaha Hadi, for example. They don't design their um, architectural uh, projects in the first instance with BIM tools. They don't use AEC tools. They use Maya, which is essentially an animation tool, right? Mm -hmm. They have meshed content for extremely high, you know, aesthetic, visual um, presentation value as the very first piece of software they use for most projects. So then they cascade it down through Rhino and then yeah, in most cases, sort of farm out the, the bimification of it and then the construction, you know, drawings and so forth. 
But they've already started in a way that is extremely advantageous to modeling out things to spatial environments and visualization. And so um, we expect that their content will be in the registry in a much more visually appealing way than most content in the first instance and many other offices in the same place, right? If you take the, the movie studios, you know, the movie, the back, the back catalogs of the movie studios we're working with are not only not in some kind of CG form, they're just the celluloid, right? So there's many pages that we go through to create, to extract the digital environment from the Blade Runner set, right? Mm -hmm. And which we would like to be doing. Um, that will take some time, but then some movie studios already have a ton of CG development, right? The, the biggest ones come out to close shop, like Disney and so forth, it's largely a closed shop, but some studios have got piece of their production workflow that have got very good established practices for a CG content. So we can just get that stuff up, up and up and ready. But there's a bunch of stuff mm -hmm. we can put out into the world and uh, hopefully yeah, we can share that announcement very soon for some of that stuff. And so they're, they're, the argument is basically that get everything in in whatever form can be visualized in a very simple way. Um, it's stabilize whatever license is like we have just one owner of it, partial owner, we can work out the royalties cascade and that, you know, exactly who owns what over time. But the signal is going to be who wants to use it for what? Are they credible partners? What is their budget? And what is the business model that they're attached to, which will liberate over time or budget? And so the financial piece is, is straightforward. We want it to be essentially cost effective for people to add their assets. If they spend more money as creators to upgrade, inventorize, mesh their asset, they're definitely going to be more visually appealing and ready to sell. Right. And a lot of this is going to be time bound and cost bound. So they have control if they have assets that are meshed and ready to go. But I think a lot of the market will be a pull market. Right. Oh, that looks interesting. Mesh it, model it. This is my spec. Get it into a USD. This probably count. You know, I need these. You know, you know, this is what we're going to do in terms of overall environment and render. And so that, and so what we're essentially trying to do there is avoid being a full operationalization partner for every iteration of a model. Right, because when we first started this, we were like, oh, well, we're just going to have to get everything into every format and pipeline before we can license it. Not true at all. People see very clearly that if they want the Eiffel Tower properly licensed for their projects, they will not be a version of it that is ready um, yeah. in yeah. licensing terms or even technical terms. You need to get a custom license set up, which is what we've built, a sort of custom licensing system that facilitates you know, license of choices for creators and a technical output pathway to facilitate what you want for your input pipeline. And that's what we think, you know, the best way, the best, the best opportunity is get everybody's content in one or two clicks. And then if people have had more sophisticated content, get them to the front of the queue because it's easiest to show that stuff and let the market play itself out. Right. And your system enables end users, people who are shopping basically on your site for through the catalog of assets to experience them in some way, I would assume. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what we call our discovery engine is our own endpoint, right? So it's a kind of sexy WebGL based viewing system. It looks, as I say, in, in sort of opera, it looks as a, as a kind of product in this broad sense, a bit like, you know, Turbo Squid or, or 3D Sketchfab or any kind of active marketplace, but it's way more beautiful. And it has a bunch of very specific characteristics that are focused on premium licensing, but we're not mm -hmm. trying to pump out very simple, you know, OBJ files yeah. uh, to people that are just doing hobby projects, right? Yeah, These are for the projects that, right? Yeah, so we're <laughs> trying to create essentially the inverse of that, which is basically people that say, oh, if I had access to a photo world version of this building, I could create a multi-million dollar movie or advertising campaign that would still save me a million dollars in, you know, in, in CG post-production, 
and location costs and you know, you know, uh, you know the damage to a damage to a monument, you know, all these things that you right. know practical movie making <laughs> you know, entails, right? And so, right? so if we have like you know that focus, um the, the, the that is our focus. And if those are our clients, right, we have to build a product set that facilitates that. So what we should have is a discovery engine, which is enables you to preview a model, we have a thing called the deployment engine and a curation tool in Unreal Engine. So that if you want to hmm. once you Reselected your assets in a web-based discovery engine, you then start going deeper into a workflow way. If you're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on an asset, you have very, very powerful tools to make those decisions. Um, and even an Unreal Engine kind of inspection system to really, you know, get into the details of the models. So, so the demand side, yes, is a marketplace, but it's structured for premium use. Now, we would love it to be the case that obviously individual users and hobby users, of course, have access to this stuff, particularly cheaper versions of things, that you should be universalization of access to content, particularly this public content, right? One of the reasons why you want every piece of content properly licensed in the registry is that a lot of content is not for commercial use. Hmm. And so you want your IP protected not to make money out of it, to, to prevent people from making money out of it. And that's the case with public monuments and so forth. What you want there, though, is licensing that prevents not just monetized use, but inappropriate use. So there's a whole other, you know, dimension of, you know, of, of, of the registry and the, you know, the output side is what you want to happen is that assets are properly licensed so that users, because, you know, so you know, like, you know, hobby users and you know, non-profit users can have, have access to models in the platforms that they're working in. Um, without having to run the risk, you know, falling foul of what, you know, licensing and restrictions may end up coming to, to, to pass. And so we do want there to be a lot of consumerization of assets, particularly for assets that aren't being used for monetary purposes. What that leads to, we you know, probably haven't got time to go into this too much, but the essential point is that we don't just want to be the marketplace for most use cases of the assets. Realistically, the premium marketplace, in fact, any market place deployment is going to be embedded in somebody's software, right? We would love to be, right, an API integrated in whenever it arrives, the filmmaker's version of Unreal Engine, right? Unreal Engine is not really highly specified for filmmakers, but at some point it will, there will be a sort of filmmakers like, you know, software, you know, set up for filmmakers so they can choose location environments, right? And just be up and running with a mountain scene and, a, you know, the, you know, a suburb in Paris and, you know, the, the pyramids within, you know, minutes, right? And it's all properly licensed and spec for their specific use case. And they want to commission adaptations or get a special license, they can get that. So realistically, we want to be the Shopify in marketplace terms of distribution. That's what we call it, a syndication system, not just a marketplace, mm -hmm. rather than just the Amazon, because actually there are so many endpoints where a marketplace dynamic for selecting assets is going to be advantageous for the creators of the software or the project of the, you know, the, the user experience that we don't want to get in the way of that. Right, so we yeah. do have a discovery engine, deployment engine, and an Unreal Engine curation tool, but we really want to be a headless system so that well-licensed assets in any form can be distributed and syndicated to whoever wants to look at them and get them into use. And there's got to be some security slash privacy controls over maybe certain zones in certain buildings that you just want to be able to, when you license out the building, maybe you're not getting all of the building because... <laughs> the entity that owns that building may not want that stuff to be known. So is there like a, some kind of a on off switch for certain aspects like that? Well, so, so you, so this is getting into the weeds of, of asset licensing and, and the market is not really clear yet in this regard. We, we've spoken to some architects, um, I mean, we've spoken to a ton of very, very high end architects and I would say 19 out of 20 of them are interested about 10 of them are ready to do it. And, 
some of the rest are at different stages of caution and time and internal decision-making. But I think it's all going to happen, right? I think that the cautionary piece is often with architectural offices that aren't interested or in a position to license sexy IP and just make free money. Like they do have things like stadiums that have, you know, um, uh, you know, security considerations, or they've got, uh, you know, a content that is heavily licensed out to somebody else and they think they can't really pull back any royalties to themselves. But if we take the, the case of security, realistically, right, um, if we spit out as a, you know, as, as I mentioned, you spit out the market into kind of premium architecture, which is kind of licensing sexy IP uh, and classic architecture is a, is a licensing iconic design and then pre, you know, c- c- kind of core mainstream architecture is licensing good design. That's kind of where the stadiums and so forth often are. Unless what they're licensing is the actual engineering work, right? The pragmatics of what mm. makes that work, just demesh it, right? Just make mm. it a, you know, a, a, a you know, a, a, you know, a, 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 you know, some, some area that has just no design specifics, right? So there's nothing that you're revealing in that sense, because in the digital environment, most of those things are needed, right? You don't need the physical structure Absolutely. for digital environments, yeah. right? So, and right. so, so, so that's the argument we made, right? To some of these, you know, the, uh, architects that were worried about licensing out designs for stadium, stadium, because it's obviously security considerations for where the structural components are and how you would, you know, engage with it if you All were a nefarious actor, right? right? But so that, there we think we, the, the, the analogy would be like, you know, Google Street View where you just have black bits, right? You know, on the, Redacted on, the on the, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that makes perfect sense, right? And so that, that in any case, by the way, like, I think that the peak of, mo- of this, uh, you know, uh, distribution syndication marketplace model that isn't likely to move slowest is the relicensing of finished architectural designs, right? It just, it seems so antithetical to how architects want to work, right? It seems like, I mean, it's funny that can kill a lot of the industry. If people are fully reusing other people's designs, right? On a, yeah. on a properly licensed basis, which of course should happen and inevitably will happen, but um, that I think is not going to move forward very fast, right? And so you can redact models and you can do all sorts of things to kind of, you know, avoid distribution of sensitive material. Generally speaking, that I don't think is the main problem. It's actually just coordination of, of the interested parties against a sufficiently sizable financial incentive and then yeah. these things will be solved. But that True. itself will take time to evolve. But things get leaked out of those institutions too, right? Like it's yeah. not like it's just automatically going to stay where well, but, they right. say but so, but so, Yeah, but so back to that point, right? So I think this is one of the interesting things is if people that, I mean, this is one of the arguments we made to the officers that have not yet decided to, you know, to join, but partly as I say, because they have all this you know, secret content. It's like, look, we're going to get it, right? You just want people in the world who are in your account saying, hey, you need to take that down. You can't use that version of it. You should have a redacted version, right? You do yeah. want there to be agents out in the market that can facilitate whatever copyright and security controls you want, right? If you want to do it all on your own, well, that's great, right? But at some point, a lot of the stuff is going to get out there. That's the nature of digital content. Yeah. And so if there are people who are, honestly policing but facilitating best practice, mm-hmm. that I think is never, that was in everyone's interest. And that's the point of the fingerprinting, right? So... Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I. This episode is made possible with support from Confluence. Picture this. October 2019, Lexington, Kentucky, the birthplace of Confluence, a place where tech leaders, AEC product developers, and practitioners came together for three transformative days. It was more than a conference. It was a confluence of ideas, discussions, and unforgettable social experiences. Since then, over 200 attendees have experienced the magic of Confluence, I've had the privilege of being part of three of these remarkable gatherings, two in Kentucky and one in Orange County. 
each one a melting pot of learning, collaboration, and camaraderie around a topic shaping our industry. And now we're thrilled to announce the next regional confluence event in April 2024 in the vibrant heart of New York City. This time, we dive deep into the realms of AI and machine learning, unraveling their mysteries and potentials in our industry. Are you interested in being part of this exciting journey to continue the conversation to shape the future? Visit the link in the show notes for more details. Confluence, where ideas flow, connections form, and the future of AEC technology is shaped one conversation at a time. My thanks to Confluence for supporting this episode of the Troxel Podcast. And now let's get back to the conversation. I guess, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of other objections that you may be hearing. And, and I should just ask you instead of me trying to come up with what those are. Are there other objections that are that you're you're hearing when it comes to this idea? I mean, as I say, so your your sort of line of questioning is very much, you know, very much matches how we've unfolded the market so far, right? The first question mm-hmm. is who's going to pay for me to register my staff? And we realize, mm-hmm. oh, it, you know, it, it shouldn't be difficult to register things. So we can't expect that everything is licensed up front. We can't expect that everything is meshed correctly or presented as a fully licensable asset up front. We're going to assume that 99% or 95% of content today isn't in that state. So we've simplified that. Um, the, the 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 other objections do include right as you say the security considerations. I think the the main thing from the Arctic perspective, right, that is a blockage and it isn't really a direct blockage for us, right, is that it's uncertainty about what it means for the overall business, mm-hmm. right. I think that's part of a larger sort of block mentality. There's so much change going on from so many perspectives. Right, people don't really have, I would say, very coherent reasons why they shouldn't be involved in this because we think this is essentially the risk, right? That's your risk management thing, more than anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. But it's like the shock of a new, right? Pretty much every one of our conversations that has terminated in involvement, we've gone through. I couldn't possibly do it. Well, we're going to do it on these terms. Yes, but well, we, we've done that, but it's now operationally very, you know, uh, inertial. There's lots of work required. Uh, well, we've done it, but you know, we we you know there are other priorities. So we go through all these stages, and then like you know, then what comes out at the end is why aren't we moving faster? We we need to get our shit licensed now. <laughs> I mean, we we've had that a number of times, right? I mean, if if I because rec- I'm 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 keeping names out of the conversation, but that specific pathway has happened a number of times, which is we couldn't do it. Yeah. We can't get agreements. There's it's going to no take a lot way. of time. Yeah, it goes yeah. from there's no way all the way to yeah. why isn't it done already? Yeah. yeah, but but in our case, it's uniquely moving faster, and we're like. We have, you're the one holding us back, right? So we have to be very polite about that. It's not that it's just a, you know, an abstraction. It's like, you know, Architects are used there, to we're... that conversation. I mean, you, yes. you throw something over to the client and it's like, okay, now we'll wait. And then as soon as they send it back, they're like, how come it's not done yet? I mean, we're used I, to I, I would say, I would think to put, to, to put a thought on this, because this is probably where the most um, durable concerns are from architects specifically as to whether they should bring their assets into a system that is just archiving fingerprinting purposes, but it's for licensing purposes, because some of the concerns are like, you know, should we, should we just use any of this? Do we need to be fingerprinting? It's very, very cautious. But if we start talking about licensing out, the two, I think, very credible concerns are, and you know, obviously I'm kind of baking into the, you know, the, the concerns, if we, it, you know, inventorize with you, are we accelerating machine learning? absorption of our content or are we doing the opposite, preventing ourselves from protecting ourselves from that? I think the two most durable questions and concerns are basically um can we prevent inappropriate use of our assets once they're being licensed? 
Mm-hmm. And then what does that mean for us in terms of reputation? Right, because it's not quite the same question as what does it mean in terms of work firm? What are we doing as, a, you know, as an yeah. industry? Where are we making money? That is a concern, but that's more part of like the shock yeah, of the new and who are we hiring? And what are we going to end up on a virtual porn set or yeah, whatever. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's the first thing. And then, and then what does it mean in terms of reputation? How do we present ourselves as a business offering? Right? Do we yeah. say we're somehow kind of hybrid spatial designers? Do we say we're architects? Like that, those two things are diversions of each other. But I think the first concern is very legitimate, right? Very, very legitimate. And I think that that's why I think I would say that's probably the strongest reason why Treasury um, will be a strong service provider because in the same way that we're saying that, you know, our, our, our offering has become, we didn't expect this to be the thing, but part of offering to creators will be, we will be your bulwark against mass absorption by machine learning training libraries. Um, we are in a position to say to uh, essentially the platforms more than individual users, you need to respect creator license terms. Currently, that is not the case, right? We, we have conversations ongoing with um, Epic Games and their marketplace, Roblox and their marketplace, Minecraft and their marketplace, and a lot of other sort of metaverse type marketplace things that are out there. And almost everyone says, well, look, it's all very well, you know, that you have this sexy spatial content and we would love to get some of it. But of course, we couldn't possibly subscribe to custom licensing conditions that these people might want. I'm like, well, that's kind of an, an oxymoronic position in the sense that you want premium shit that is exclusive and is highly characterized. And it's a value proposition where you, where you want to treat it like standard licensed consumer stuff. Right, right. And that is actually a standoff right now directly between, I, well, I will not mention when, which one of those marketplaces and any of the creators involved, but it's an ongoing legal question right now. Because the platform says, look, we love to license yourself out of scale. We know what you're offering. We can make a lot of money out of it for ourselves and for you. We can get a lot of users adopting this as spatial assets for their, you know, digital environments. But no, we can't. We couldn't possibly restrict, you know. And and that that matters a lot because actually if we go back to the, the case of, you know, registering and licensing things that are not for commercial purposes, right? You discover that there's actually a lot more sensitivity there to, to use case dynamics and use case restrictions than there is even for commercial stuff, right? Because it's frankly speaking, you know, ultimately everything to do with porn and sex gets somewhat normalized and in, in, as the liberal society, you know, trends. And certainly it's the case that if an architectural office that is pretty, you know, confident about its own identity was paid millions of dollars for a porn set, a tasteful porn, they go, fuck it, with free money. Who cares? You know, it's legal, <laughs> right? Right. But, but, but that, but, but, but that, but that actually doesn't describe the reason to have in place very well-established restrictive licensing practices, yeah. because that isn't the worst use case. The worst use case no, that imaginable is let's say the World Trade Center Memorial goes into a, some kind of metaverse environment and people start spending quality experiential time there as they should and will be able to, thanks, as you say, to the quality of these headsets and these experiences. But guess what? There's somebody there putting extremely noxious, inflammatory, illegal, deeply disturbing material on that for whatever political yeah. purpose, right? Right. That That's the reason why we want very carefully structured licensing. It isn't that, you know, people who have fancy shit will be annoyed that somebody's paying them for something that is, you know, a bit, but, yeah, you know, right. out there, <laughs> it, it, it's the people that aren't being paid at all and only stand yeah. for social issues or religious issues or, you know, something that's very sensitive to society is right. then in the middle of something that is deeply disturbing. And that I think is the most credible and, and, uh, and, and present concern in relation to licensing our content. And I would say that would be the piece that will take the longest to solve because it would require the platforms to stand to stand up for custom licensing, where if you put yeah. the pyramids in or you put the 
World Trade Center, Trade Center Memorial Inn, or you put the Holocaust Memorial Inn, you have to have extremely tight controls, legally binding controls over who can do what there, because everybody is harmed. Society is harmed. The you know, the original aesthetic and creative and cultural intent of these con- of this content, whole nation states are harmed if that stuff goes wrong, right? So this right. isn't somebody being annoyed that they're being paid by something they don't like. This is something way larger than that. And that isn't, it's one of the many things that isn't being taken seriously in the space, which is that licensing out of public monuments and religious content and cultural icons and just private shit. People then they even sell it mean something to them. You don't want that stuff to be graffitied by somebody you don't like, you know, in a social media context. And I think that is where the most, you know, credible concern is at scale and is not resolved because the platforms are not ready to sign up to what we would call uh, conditional or, or custom licensing. And then that becomes a question of identity, right? Who wants to be close to risk? And most people yeah. don't. So you have to right. narrow the risk. So it just, just, you know, so you have a sense of the way we have developed our discovery engine is everything is private, right? There is a public version of discovery engine, which will be visible in some you know, weeks. So you can see a very limited set of content. Right. But if you want to see everything that we have in the pipeline, um, you need to apply for a discovery engine, be a qualified potential customer of asset licenses, and they will gradually show you things that are in more and more sensitive stages of licensing. Because this is the point, as I say, the, 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 the grand concern is who is responsible, who, how do we control, you know, how things are used, which is not just licensing, but, you know, platforms deciding to allocate liability and restrict users and so forth. But then you need to put that back to the creator side, identities and risks and associations. So that's helped us a lot, actually, is thinking through um, how to do the business model. Is to say, essentially, okay, everything that really matters is currently in private view. So we pre-quantify the buyers and have a public layer of this. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I think it will all work itself out, right? I think society is a way less nefarious and all of these arguments would seem to imply, but you have to respect what people's yeah. sensitivities are, sure. right? We are a custodian sure. of content and I'm happy that we're in that role. I don't like, you know, um, sort of scaremongering and imagining, suggesting that, you know, everyone's going to deface every monument and there'll be enormous numbers of sort of, you know, religious, you know, inter- sort of sectarians, conflicts coming into the spatial environment, but we have to, you know, set up best practices after we let society get on with this stuff yeah there was there was something that you said the last time that we we spoke about buildings being kind of or architecture being the base that everything is built on in society and how everything it it ties everything together do you remember what that was i'm i'm looking because i wrote i wrote something down about it but i'm I'm struggling to find it. Here, here it is. Everything, everything fits on top of the built world is something that you said, and I'm just wondering, like, when you're when you're thinking about this particular opportunity and challenge uh, in an uh, an industry that is slow to move when it comes to these kinds of things, to just kind of put a put a period on this to say, like, how how much the work that this industry produces matters and how it is going to tie into things they're not dreaming about yet in a in a very short order i think it, it's it's going to be even more the case because people are going to be longing for new types of experiences and this is going to be one of the ways in which that happens and it's all going to revolve around 
things that people have already experienced, maybe in different ways, but it's still there's still a construct here, and architects are very yeah. well positioned for that. Mm. Okay, so uh, so this this is the inverse of me kind of like making slide digs at architecture. This is me mm -hmm. sort of trying to to underpin why architecture is essential now mm -hmm. at it, and always and what it really does. And I think one of the problems with architect, architecture having been weak in its own theorization is that vaguely speaking, what people understand inside and outside the professionals, what's going on is there's some kind of standoff between aesthetics and engineering. And that's mm -hmm. not what's going on. The engineering mm -hmm. piece of architecture is, is negligible, right? Engineering is largely solved. The technical piece of architecture is not engineering. It is spatial configuration. Mm -hmm. And so if yeah. you want to take architecture seriously and think, what is it really doing technically? It isn't solving engineering. I mean, historically, all of this is blended together. So, so it's a little bit difficult to see architects were master engineers. Right now, the great architecture of the modern world that truly works, rather than just being a static novelty, is, 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 uh, is, uh, are built spaces that are it's spatially the, configured in ways the, that are profoundly yeah, right. it's, it's effective. It's not the framework, it's, it's the void. That, right. It, it's, and, so, yeah. and, so, and, so, and so if you take spatial configuration, you unpack that. Well, what is spatial configuration as opposed to engineering or assessing what was spatially configuring it? Configuration is, is, a, is a myriad of fascinating and very specific disciplines, right? If you look at the very little bits of architecture that are properly theorized, right? So at the beginning, so space syntax is not properly theorized, but the beginnings of it are setting up the beginning of theory. When you look at things like, you know, the so-called J-graph, right? Some of what's going on in architectural design technology around, you know, um, graph theory and topology and so forth, it starts to get to like the core theory of spatial configuration, but it's pretty narrow. If you look at so-called circulation diagrams, how do you get in and out and around a building, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at how that relates to program, where is the water cooler? Where is the bathroom? Where is the, you know, the, the buffet? Where is the, you know, the ping pong table versus where the sight lines are versus where the private areas are versus, you know, this is the actual science of architecture. And it's basically intuitive. It isn't really taught clearly at architecture schools. No. And that is now going to be at a massive premium because everyone's going to try and fake it and they get it wrong, right? You, yep. you go into digital spatial environments right now of any sort, right? All horrendous bullshit. Doesn't make any sense, right? Because, because the very nature of being quasi-embodied in a digital spatial environment, right? As an implication, if you don't have an actual body, you have a, a sense of space yeah. that is configured that's configured around your the affordances of the real human body, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you discover is that we're going to regrow a new science of spatial configuration for digital spatial environments that is kindred with and cognate with the science of spatial configuration for physical spatial environments. But that is going to be an exploding space opportunity because you don't have to fucking build anything. You don't have to solve, you know, tectonics or the cost of structures. You can treat truly speculative and go to the edge, right? So if we take an example, right? If we look at cathedrals, the science, the design of cathedrals, what is it that makes them magical, right? Well, one of the things that makes them magical is how they use light, right? If you go to Notre Dame, right? We're all going to go back there when it's, when it's, when it's opened again. And you go to any other, like, you know, classical cathedral, the thing that breaks your heart is how light is used and how it, how it, 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 it animates yeah. space, right? Yeah. The, and how it narrates space. And I think that when you, when you realize that one of the main constraints on experimenting with just lights and colored light, but light in general, how light interacts with space has been building things. It's so hard to build things that are interesting in terms of how they configure light. Yeah, that just, right. that, just that one thing alone is going to be a whole new universe of opportunity. 
right? So I genuinely believe, going back to the point about creators and how they will drive like the, the, the form factor and the, uh, uh, and the experiential value and it, iterate, iterate towards universalization of these technologies, is that we will have cathedrals in digital spatial environments. Mm-hmm. And the people will want to spend a lot of time there. Yeah. And what that and that's just one little tiny slice of spatial configuration. So if you take architecture as a profession that has, I wouldn't say sold, but is the only profession to attempt to solve on a case by case basis, um, spatial configuration, it isn't doing engineering of structure. It's not tectonics. That's just a limited piece of architecture. The aesthetics mm-hmm. of it is obviously related, but it's in many, in many cases, particularly today, separate from the spatial configuration aspect. That is a technical work of architecture. And that has such a vastly expanded scope in spatial technology, spatial computation, and digital spatial environments. And so if architects want to see a new horizon opportunity, and they are interested in what architecture actually does, rather than just building spaces for money, for conventional program, the horizon is digitally and literally endless. It's interesting that you brought up cathedrals because I, I was in Las Vegas in November for Autodesk University and I got to go into the sphere a couple of times. Yeah. And it's basically a digital environment for a thousand people or however many people can it can see. Yeah. And uh you they there's a movie that you sit through, it's it's an hour long or so, and it's called A Postcard from Earth. And you get to visit various scenes and they it's not just visual obviously there's a huge audio component to this there's like a 67,000 speakers or something in this inside the sphere and then there's also air cannons down at the bottom and they're shooting up so so you are having a multi-sensory experience with a bunch of people um, but what i found most intriguing about that experience was the scale shift that could be achieved and this is something that happens in VR goggles too. I've been in my own designs inside VR goggles and your sense of space, because it's a one-to-one scale factor, it it feels legitimate. And in that movie, we went from being outdoors in a Utah, right? So desert, gorgeous desert environment. It feels expansive. Then we go into a cathedral and it feels like you're in the size of a space of a cathedral and the light mm. and the shadow and the stained glass mm. and mm. and just the acoustics of it, everything. And then you're in a taxi cab and you can look wherever you want to look. You can look mm. around in this space. Mm. You're, it's not just where the camera points. The camera captured a 360 degree, 60 degree spherical video. And mm. in the cab, I can look to my left. I can look to my right. I can look at the 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 top of the cab it felt like i was in that size of a space and i am in an enormous space i'm not in vr goggles but it's not going to be different when you're in vr goggles and i think Mm. it is kind of mind-blowing as a as an architect as a designer of space to see how significant of an impact that can have on somebody's experience and it's completely digital it's Mm. absolutely incredible. And so yeah. I, I, I guess the reason I want to tell the story is because I, I really do feel like you are going as an architect, as a designer of the built environment, even in a digital sense, you are going to be able to have impactful mm. impact on people's experiences in mm. these digital spaces. And why mm. wouldn't you want to do that too, in mm. addition to the things that you're doing in the real world? Yeah. Analog. Thank you. That's very, very eloquent. I mean, what, what it allows me to do is to kind of like set up 
as where the punchline of our spatial computation thesis, um, uh, it's essentially this, right? W when we talk about spatial computation, the, the, in the thesis, we essentially sort of start with this idea that there's this convergence of many technologies onto a spatial infrastructure layer on the internet. And so, you know, spatial computing is to um, metaverse as, you know, uh, in, internet is to cyberspace and so forth. So we set up that whole technical premise, but then we, we kind of invite the larger conversation on, on a relatively simple idea, which is that if we want to understand in very human terms, not in technical terms, where we are going with all the spatial computation, particularly once we set up the caution that social VR and these virtual alternative worlds is not likely to be, in my, in my view, technically or psychologically or socially, let alone commercially, the main event. What else is there? Well, it, we don't know because there's infinite opportunities, but what we think is worth saying, and this is sort of, to some extent, framing some of what you're, you, you've laid out very beautifully, is that if you ask yourself the question, what, you know, what is it that's going on in these digital spatial environments? And you want to sort of unkick where I think with great respect, Mark Zuckerberg has made quite a profound mistake. If you ask him what's going on, you, you start from the Zuckerberg perspective, which is what's going on is technical immersivity. We have a headset, we have a virtual photo reel experience. Holy shit, that's amazing. I'm very immersed in that. But that technical immersivity turned out to be not that interesting. We don't want to stay there. We have more and more and more photo environments to explore. If somehow we don't stay in that, people have bought the Oculus Pro headset, which is you know, probably as good as many of the ones that are out there, at least in terms of they can do that. It, the photo world experiences don't somehow become sticky. And so what we see in the spatial computation thesis is technical immersivity isn't quite a red herring, but it's a bit of a chimera in the sense of what mm. attaches people to digital spatial content is what we call narrative immersivity. It's having an identity in a human psychological construct that matters to them, right? And so what you, what you, what you can contrast is a digital spatial environment, a digital a spatial technology that has incredibly low technical immersivity. Let's take Google Maps, where all you want is a blue dot on a flat 2D screen, all right? Now, the, the technical immersivity, immersivity of that is low. And the, and the narrative immersivity of that is essentially zero when you just open a map and you're sitting there going, well, I'm where I am. But if you need to be in a hospital because your friend, partner, child is mortally ill and you've set out on the map how to get to the hospital in 17 minutes in the car with traffic, that is the only fucking narrative in your life that makes sense. You are 110% engaged in that narrative fully immersed and the technical immersivity does not matter to you in actual fact were it to be more immersive you have a fucking set of goggles and ar shit and the other stuff you can get out of the google maps like application you would not want it because it gets in the way of the narrative so what you discover is that if you want to take spatial computation seriously and the whole world of value and experience understand that the technical immersivity aspect can be a distraction what actually makes humans want to be there and when you look at that what you discover is that if you go back in the history of world civilization, it is mistaken to think that technical progress is the only thing that people seek or is the terminus of all um, human value. You know, it wasn't the case that the, you know, the cave dwellers around the Lasco caves needed to wait until a TV and a market economy and, you know, you know, TV dinners were available before they started putting content on the wall, right? That, that, that was their movie. That was their... Mm -hmm. EV, presumably, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they did it for some reason. It's a spatial, it's a spatial piece of content. 
And the reason why, presumably, it is valuable to them or was valuable to them, somehow narratively immersive. We don't quite know why. Some education, culture, training, religion, whatever it may be. And when you go through the history of content, you discover that, holy shit, we have masses of narrative immersion in things that are technically hardly immersive at all. What's a mm. book? Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's a song? If it isn't massively narrative, narratively immersive without any technology, right? Mm. And so if you want to really reframe the metaverse, and this is what I think should happen, this is how you reclaim the word metaverse. You talk about massive narrative immersion. And this is, as it were, the bigger picture of spatial configuration, right? Which is, if architects are doing anything with their spatial configuration, they're telling stories that matter. And they're putting us in those stories. Yeah. That's how architects should be defined, right? Yeah. Stories of matter with us having a role, right? When we enter the space, suddenly we're in the story. That's how cathedrals work. Yep. You're in yep. the space for you. conversation yeah. with God because of the way the light interacts with the space. Right, right. <laughs> and so and when you see the spatial configuration, is a way to set up not just the value of the digital spatial environment, but any human engagement interface. <laughs> And you understand the narrative immersivity is what we seek. It's why we're all taking drugs these days or people that are bored with TV, right? It's why therapy is happening. It's why we're all spending a lot of time, you know, working out everything that is not consumerism. It's because somehow the physics of it isn't sufficient for us. So what are we looking for? Some kind of narrative immersion, a story in which we have a role that matters to us in yeah. every domain of our lives. And you are absolutely right, Evans, that the spatial aspect of that is probably the path because the, in the human faculty system, the visual faculty is massively more powerful than any other. Right. And it is the one that binds all the others together. Hmm. When people hear things, they spatially localize them, right? Mm -hmm. This specific point is why I am so fascinated by this. It's because if you want to look at human progress, you get back to the visual capabilities of cognition, how visual cognition relates to identity, how spaces and narratives dominate narrative immersivity and role-making for people in society. It is so foundational, right? So back to my Sanskrit stuff, if you want to find a way to talk about cognition in a way that's much more interesting than silly conversations about AGI, think about how people instantiate in space. And one of the main reasons why the AGI conversations don't make sense is because there isn't a core to the identity of the agent, which is what happens in spatial instantiation. You have to be somewhere. AGIs and LLM senses aren't anywhere. So that's why I don't think they exist. They don't have a spatial instantiation. Mm -hmm. That's what happens in spatial instantiation. You mm -hmm. are somewhere. And from that comes your, from the narrative immersion in that space or not comes your role. And from your role comes your identity and comes your, from your identity comes your meaningfulness in society writ large. So <clears throat> I don't think it is correct to underestimate the power of these things. I think actually what will happen is that breakthroughs in little corners of, I mean, spirituality is maybe too strong, but like psychedelic cognitive experimentation and mental health and education will be the things that tell us in addition, in parallel with, you know, creative experimentation and, you know, thinking through the wow factor, how powerful this stuff is. And I don't think it's accidental. It's not because Zuckerberg tells us to put on an expensive headset or Tim Cook has run out Wi-Fi to sell. It's because we were always going in this direction. Is that the visual machinery of cognition is the most powerful root of human self and social understanding. 
And if we invent a technical version to experiment, explore, expand that, and we fill it with technically well-configured spaces, spatial configuration, which is what architecture can lead, and we evolve around that narrative, narratively immersive experiences for individuals and groups. Eh. That sounds like interesting progress for humanity. It does, yeah. A beautiful I mean, way. Not, 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 not least, right, because so much of what will happen there is dematerialized, right? I don't think what this will lead to is escapism anymore. You know, I mean, the internet is escapism, but we had, you know, escapism from novels and newspapers and TV and movies and so forth. Escapism is always part of, you know, our resistance to pra pragmatic engagement in the, in, the, in the substance of life. I don't think this is going to be any different from that. People will spend their time, how they spend their time. I think it will bring us to, as much as any other medium, like new experiments in, you know, what it means to build out humanity and society, but I also do think it will cost a lot less in material terms. I think there are other ways in narrating sustainability, athletes, treasury. We don't have time for that right now. But I do think um, dematerializing people's aspirations and consumption patterns is a huge part of it. Mm, they will be able to go to the rainforest without having to fly on a plane and go yeah. through, you know, take right. a Jeep to the logging trails, end up in the rainforest going, I fucking hate it here. It's yeah. hot. I'm being bitten. <laughs> I've, I've contributed to damaging this place. I'm sure I'm about to be shot by somebody. What the fuck am I doing here? It's hopeless. Same for Mount Everest, right? <laughs> People can experience the world yeah. narratively without having to do all the physics. And then that is going to be very interesting. Yeah, it is. I, that's, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that we got there. This was a, a beautiful way, I think, to kind of wrap up the conversation. Is there anything else that we're missing here? I mean, I think, well, so this has been great because this has been, I think, by far the most sort of um, um, uh, explicit unpacking of the layers of what this is and why I'm interested in it and we're interested in it and why we want you know, creators of spatial assets and builds digital environments to be interested in it. I would say I have to do my job as, a, as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur and say, I would love people to engage, right? Mm -hmm. and, and they should tell us what this is going to be because it's a very simple proposition that get content available for use uh, it, that respects its potential and its value. And if you are a designer of spatial content, architecture primarily, but also film and reality capture, real estate, if you're building spatial experiences and you want the best stuff, technically, creatively, or legally, we'd love to have the conversation. And, 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 and coming back, right, to, to, to tell, to hear from people how this is all massively misguided and will never work, right? Is going to be great. So feel free, come up with the opposite rather than constructive engagement and onboarding absolute brick bats. And, um, but for me, it's not just, you know, getting this done practically. It's also understanding all these things because it's almost pretty fascinating. So practical engagement is great. Conversation is equally good. Thank you, Evan. And people can find you at treasury.space. Yeah, treasury.space, and there's a treasury uh, uh, Twitter account, a treasury LinkedIn account, and then we're just about to um, boot up the treasury Instagram account. And um, I, I mean, pragmatically, I think, you know, the, the, the things people can do is get their registry account set up, get in the pipeline for that. If you know, there's a wait list, we'll help you depending on, you know, what your status is. We'll make it cheap for you or free depending on your status. If you're building anything, get a discovery engine. We'll give you a initial iteration for free. Just play around with it, break it. But if you just want to be part of the conversation, we have what we call sessions, mm -hmm. uh, both scientific 
sessions and um, general architectural design technology, space technology sessions, they're all linked from the treasury.space homepage and the, and the socials. But particularly for architecture people, they'll be interested in that. I mean, in the next three months, we have the last, the, 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 the continuing three of a four-part series of, um, of uh, uh, a specific session mini-series focused on architecture with Zahra and guests. The next session we have Zahar and Epic Games. In the last session we have, you know, Zahar Hadid in the form of Patrick Schumacher and the head of technology at Foschian Partners. I mean, this is high-end stuff, right? Yeah. And yeah. so that will be the place. If you're in London, grab a ticket because it'll be pretty much sold out. Um, but there's also happening online to be inspired. It would take a less of a sort of surplus level version of the conversation, more specifically, yeah. what is Zaha doing? What is Foster doing? Mm -hmm. Who thinks what? And we as Treasury can take more of a backseat and facilitate what we think is the right conversation. Uh, you know, we, we want people to be deciding and then we can, you know, uh, um, creators and, and users to decide and we can help, um, you know, on that basis. But join in, in the conversation if you don't want to be actively involved in, you know, using or, or licensing out assets. And so Treasury sessions, link from the website, and there's other ways to get involved, but those are the main ones. Nice. Well, I'll have links to all of that in the show notes for this episode. And John, this has been... I always love talking to you, John. It's it's like listening yeah. to a podcast on 1.5 speed when I listen to you, which <laughs> I, I appreciate. Uh, because, uh, I, but but it's been it's always a fascinating conversation. You're a deep thinker. You're a big thinker, and uh, I, I frankly wish there were more of you out there. So uh, I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, Evan. It's a delight to speak to you. You're, as I, as I mentioned, you're one of the only people who um, has sufficient grounding in, in in the practice, sufficient grounding in the technology, sufficient um, sort of interest in the conversation sufficient reach and credibility into people's you know thought spaces and commercial practices to have those conversations right so the fact that we managed to get this done after a, a, a fair while of fiddling around with it is yeah. is a delight to me and a, and a privilege so thank you so much it was worth the wait yeah so thank okay. you again and uh, i'm sure we'll have you back for a round two sometime lovely thanks evan bye Thanks to our sponsors, and thanks to our members this week. Find out how you can become a member at trxl.co, and I'll talk to you again next week.